You are At The Net. And welcome, friends, to another episode of the At The Net podcast, powered by Tex-Mex Productions. Working the soundboards in the back of the house are our producers, D-Mac and Dave the Brain. Time to say hello to your hosts, Craig Bell and AJ Shabria, as they're about to take us through three sets of tennis, talking life and all the news as it seems to them. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Bell. Thanks, Jordan. Podcast over was uh, in self-exile. Yes. And he, he himself was in a bunker, allegedly yes. in Africa. Yes. We're going to guarantee you we've stayed in, in the Africa. States. We're not even allowed to leave. Yes. Yeah, we're here. Yes. We're here. Also, be sure to check out our good work on Fireside, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Basically, it's all the communication sites that uh, you kids find popular right yep. aj yeah i, I find th- we all we find them all popular and uh craig loves saying breaker oh yeah that's breaker, so breaker. fun anchor breaker uh also if you're a female sorry guys we'd like to read the opening intro for at the net podcast and be an at the net girl let us know we're always looking for new female voices to do the intro even in a foreign, foreign language, language. la right definitely well tonight we've got a really interesting guest that uh, we came across through one of our, our former guests, David Good. This guy, uh, this individual that's on the the other line right now, is a gentleman by the name of Paul Walker. Paul is a uh, man. You just done just about everything there is to do, Paul. Is, is there anything that you left that you want to do in life? You know what? I, I'm going to leave it up to just however the winds take me right now. Uh, life is good and uh, for sure, but uh, I've been fortunate, been blessed, and so you know I'm just happy with where I'm at right now in the world. I'm happy to be talking with you guys tonight. We'll see where this thing goes. Yeah. So basically, basically, we're talking to Captain Paul Walker. I think that was your your last rank in the U.S. Army. Was that that correct? Uh, that is correct. Yep, yep. But let me be clear about this. My wife still outranks me. Uh, she, she ended up as a major, and uh, not that she needed the rank to outrank me, as all, all wives do, but uh, I just wanted to be on the record for that one. Well, I, I didn't realize that uh, uh, lower uh, commissioned officers could actually talk to upper-level commissioned officers. I did. <laughs> they can fraternize. They, they huh? can fraternize? Yeah. Did, were you all able to do that? Was, are, well, we we didn't fraternize. I mean, she just ended up staying in a little longer than I did after I got injured. Uh, um, she, you know, she did a little bit more time, and by that time, she made it to the major rank. But uh, we were we were peers, so yeah. we'll say that it was you know kosher. Right. And you were injured in what was that? Nineteen ninety four, right? Yeah, it's been a few years. Uh, so right. yeah, nineteen ninety four, August of nineteen ninety four. Uh, you know, Terry, my wife, and I, we were both stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. So you know, got some kin in Texas. There, not some kin, but uh, got some association with the great state of Texas. We loved our time there, down at the big fort in Eileen. And so yeah, uh, we were there in August when I got injured in a parachute accident. And you know, but like I said, life goes on, and here we are, twenty however many years later. I can't even do the math anymore. Well, Paul, Paul is. Uh... 
and currently he's your assistant coach at your alma mater. That would be Florida Southern, the Mox, the right? The Mox. Yes, we love the Mox. Yeah. Confused with the with the shoes. These are the these are the cotton mouse, the water moccasins. So yeah, we're we're a deadly breed. And uh, so yeah, I've been fortunate to be with the program now in the uh, fifth year. Of course, this year got shortened like every other uh, sports season did. And uh, but it's been really great. It's been it's been what a wonderful addition to the things that I've done in tennis to get into the collegiate environment. I, I think I don't know if there could be a better environment to to spend time in the tennis world than in the collegiate environment. You've got so much good positive energy and. And, um, you know, the kids that come in and out of the, the universities and colleges are great and they're there to play hard and, and have great attitudes. And I'm really fortunate that uh, Coach Trish Riddle asked me to be a part of that program. And again, because it's in my hometown and uh, my alma mater was really just a, just a great fit. So I've really enjoyed the last uh, five years with the team. And basically, so here's a couple of things about uh, Captain Walker. You uh, Professional Tennis Registry. PTR, Wheelchair Player of the Year 2003, Polk mm. County High School Coach of the Year 2005 and six, International Tennis Federation, ITF, that would be, Wheelchair Tennis Coach of the Year in 2013, Paralympic, USTA Paralympic Tennis Coach of the Year 2014, Tennis Industry Magazine, Wheelchair Tennis Champion of the Year 2015. That's a big deal, huh? That's they, a big I deal. Mean, they all are. And order is, is it ICOS or ECOS? ECOS. Order ECOS. Yes, right. in 2016. So, I mean, there isn't anything that this guy hasn't done. He's also, yeah. uh, you know, the fascinating part is we share a very similarity in our backgrounds in college. Now, you were a history and political science major at Florida Southern. I was a history and political science major at Weber State in, in Ogden, Utah. I graduated a few years before you did. So, But we, we share a love of history and political science, which we both are in the tennis business, so that doesn't mean anything. We can just play a really good game of Jeopardy. And, there, and there's no question Craig's a history buff, and I look forward to, to hearing about Paul a little bit more today and getting Going to know you. Yes. And also, uh, the major and the captain have two boys. That would be Jake and Danny. Is that correct? That is correct. Spot on. How old are, how old are Jake and Danny? Uh, Jake's uh, 21 and Danny is 14. So we got a pretty good gap between the two of the boys. But, uh, you know, works out all right. And uh, they're doing well. And so we're, we're all good here in Lakeland, Florida. Good. You still have the cat Pepper and the dog Moxie? Pepper uh, has gone to the big cat uh, heaven. Oh, uh, we wow. still have we still have Moxie though, uh, named after uh, the, the moccasins. Yeah. Uh, so you know we had a Labrador uh, when Terry and I first met. I had a dog. She had a dog. Her dog was a black Labrador, who she named after uh, her mascot at, at West Point, which were the Black Knights of the Hudson. So yes. her, her dog was named Knight. So when we got this most recent uh, Labradoodle, we've we've transitioned into the Doodle world. Uh, I said, hey, how about if we name her after my alma mater and, and uh, Moxie? And she's like, sounds like a like a fair deal. So she she was able to. You know, let me give the dog the name this time. And it's her baby, though. I will give you that. <laughs> How old is little Moxie? How old is Moxie? Moxie is a 77-pound, uh, about a three-and-a-half-year-old, 77-pound Labradoodle. She is She is a beautiful girl. 70 pounds, did you say? 77, yeah. Wow. She, she's, she's a big girl. Big, not, strong not a lap dog. By, it you know, well, well, she, she doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't hold back. She will crawl up, uh, you know, and attempt to be. But uh, no, she's a, she's a she's an athlete. She gets out, you know, we walk her, run her. You know, she's she loves it, and um, she's she's great. She's just amazing. So we're 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 happy with our pet situation right now. And no hair. That's one of the beautiful things about doodle breeds. Man, what a difference maker. So how we want to do this this tonight is break this down in three phases. We want to do this. Uh, prior to your injury in 1994, up to 1994, then after your injury, 
and then maybe some pop culture if you'll you'll humor us and let us ask you a few pop culture culture questions uh, later on down at the, the road. at the very end. Yeah, is that okay? It sounds like a nice format. Let's rock and roll. Okay, thanks, so, Paul. So growing up, you're a Florida native. Is that correct? Not correct. I'm a oh. Buffalo, New York, Buffalo, huh? New York, upstate New York guy. Yeah. Uh, born and raised in Buffalo or a little suburb of Buffalo, Clarence, New York. So was there until I left there in 1982 after graduating from high school to come down to Florida, um, yeah. you know, to pursue baseball and whatever other things, you know, were, were going to be offered down here during my college years. Tons of, uh, of New Yorkers, uh, upstate, western New York and uh, New York City. Tons of New Yorkers end up in Florida. You just did it sooner than everybody else, huh? Uh, you know, some people figure these things out sooner than others, and uh, I just feel like I was on the cutting edge. I'm, I'm just going to you haven't gone back. It sounds like you, you, yeah. just, you decided to be a snowbird forever, right? Yeah, you know, and it's funny. My mom and dad, uh, my dad's passed away years ago, but uh, you know, my mom continues to always tell me that the, the day they dropped me off at college, you know, they knew they'd lost me to the state of Florida, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, she, you know, being being as wise as parents are, uh, they were right. And uh, after some years of traversing around the world with some military time and everything like that, when it was time to settle down, Florida was just seemed like the right fit. So we've been here since 1998. So I really, really like it here. So, so growing up in Buffalo, you played baseball. What position did you play? Just out of curiosity, you, you were you were a scholarship um, player at Florida Southern. So you must have played a lot of baseball growing up. So can I tell us yeah. about your background? Yeah, I was a middle infielder, kind of my, my specialty, uh, not a big guy, about 5'8", and, you know, so, uh, but quick, and, and so kind of really lend myself to being in that middle infield position, uh, shortstop and second base, I uh, had a pretty good arm, so shortstop was, was viable, uh, but near the end of the, my playing days, it was more on the second base side. So, uh, good hitter? Were you a better fielder or better hitter? Better fielder, uh, better fielder and all-around knowledge of the game guy hitting came to me a little bit later you know and uh, uh managed to be probably an average hitter uh but the rest of the game was kind of where i specialized in fielding and just knowledge of the game and understanding and, and good feel for the game yeah and uh and growing up in western new york um were you uh, pittsburgh pirates new york mets uh, New York Yankees. What team did you follow as a kid? He's going to tell you uh, in a second. You haven't gotten there yet, but uh, Boston, Boston Red, Red Sox oh, was my oh, next one. Boston. Was it really? All right. I don't know what took you so long to get there, but uh, you, you know, know what? AJ didn't read the notes. I, I read did. The notes. I went more geographically. And then I yeah, probably makes sense. Everybody I, asks why a Red Sox fan. So a quick story is that in uh, 1972, we moved from Buffalo, the city, to this uh, town of Clarence. In 73, uh, my next-door neighbor, a guy by the name of Joey DeFrancisco, got a game called Stratomatic Baseball. And it was it was recently, yeah. and there was an article in the paper about it. It's old school. And uh, so all of the kids in the neighborhood, we all got a team. And I got the 1972 version of the Boston Red Sox. And so from that point on, I just started liking the Red Sox. And they had some great years. Uh, um, in 75 with the World Series against the, the Reds and then so on and so forth. The long story traditions until they fought he won one in 2004. Yeah, that was Tony Tony Canigliario. Wasn't he on that team? Dwight Evans? You know, those uh, Dwight Evans was just starting yeah, back then yeah. early yeah. years, you know, and then by 75, you, had, you know, Jim Rice, Fred Lynn, yep. uh, Luke Johns, uh, all those guys, Carlton Fisk, you know, yeah. and yeah, Freddie Pontek. Freddie Strepsky. Freddie Pontek was Kansas City. Oh, Kansas City. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Ah, missed that one. That I was a Baltimore Orioles fan. Yeah, I was an Oriole. I, I liked the Orioles at that point in life. My my brother liked the Yankees, 
And we lived on Baltimore Street in Lawton, Oklahoma. So that, that was my only claim to fame was the Baltimore Orioles. You were the ball or you were the birds. <laughs> yeah, I was the birds. The birds. Right there. But so so playing baseball around the Buffalo area, uh, I'm sure how'd you catch on with Florida Southern? What was the the enticing opportunity to the coach see you playing in like a little league world series in uh, Oh no, 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 no. I, you know, and I won't I won't sit here and claim that, you know, when I came down to Florida Southern they were waiting for me like, oh my God. You know, here he comes, wait. the second coming. <laughs> No, it was it was more of a hey. Uh, let me. I showed up and, and they were decent enough to keep me around for a couple of years. But uh, what I think I realized is was a really good baseball player coming from Western New York uh, arrives in, in Central Florida, and there's that really great baseball players, and it's like it's kind of an eye opener. Uh, but I was I was just happy that uh, for once in my life I was able to play baseball year round because I would just be pining for it, um, you know, during the winter months in, in Buffalo and everything like that. And so that was kind of one of the one of the impetuses for heading to. To Florida was like, you know, I want to go somewhere where I could actually play the sport all year round. All year. And immerse myself in it and enjoy it, you know, to the maximum amount. So that's kind of was one of the big, big draws. One of our uh, people that are watching the, on our Facebook page said that Florida is a huge upgrade from Buffalo. <laughs> He's a <laughs> in tennis pro in Florida. <laughs> in, I mean, if we're just basing it on weather and, and year round, yes, you know, but Buffalo is a charming city and most people will tell you uh, that come from Buffalo. Good people, good family area, great restaurants, good food. So a lot of good things about Buffalo, and still my family uh, is up there. Still a good portion of my family is up there, so I still have my connections there. Uh, but, uh, Florida does have quite a few nice things going for it, for sure. So are, you, are you a Bills fan? i, I got to ask that question. Are, are I you... am. I am. I, I've, I've lived through the four straight and uh, stuck with them throughout the years, and Yep, so I'm a Bills fan. I'm uh, a Sabres fan. I was a Boston Brave, uh, Boston Braves, or uh, Buffalo Braves fan back when they had an NBA uh, yes. franchise. Uh, but you know, Boston's the only uh, deviation from a Buffalo fan that I have. Yeah. Well, so and also when you were at this time when you were growing up, you had a friend. I think I, I read that uh, played a little tennis. So you were around tennis at that point. You really didn't focus on tennis, but. Uh, it might, they might, uh, was it Joey? Was Joey the, the, your friend that said, Hey, let's go play a little tennis here and there. Kind of tell us about your tennis background. Yeah. So I grew up on a, on a street called Gunville road, which happens to be the road that the Clarence high school is located on, uh, Clarence high school is on the intersection of Gunville road and main street. And so when I would walk out, uh, my front door and if I went 200 yards, I was on the soccer field. If I went, you know, another 200 yards, I was on the baseball field. I deviated a little bit to the left at about 250 yards. I was on the tennis courts and then so on and so forth. So for a kid who was just an athlete, um, it was a playground to grow up and be around. And so because there was tennis courts there, it's like, well, all right, well, then let's check out tennis. So in the summer months, it was just a fun recreational thing. And so I you know, played it again because I just was maybe a, a fairly good athlete. I was able to kind of harness a little bit of skill, but never really trained or, or you know, received any lessons growing up. It wasn't a focal point. But I had a couple of buddies who played high school tennis, so we would play together. And so it was just something that was always a part of my life because I love sports of all, of all kinds. And so, you know, tennis was, was one of them. And it was in a great era, of course, American tennis with, with Connors and McEnroe and, and everything like that. So so those were, those were good years way back then. Did you ever go over to the Open? Did you ever venture over from Buffalo down to the uh, U.S. Open like Adrian did? Because Adrian's a New Yorker. He's a fellow New Yorker. Yeah, I, I got to go. I grew up in downstate New York where city folks would call substate. Upstate people would call us the city. But uh, you're, you're what, about seven, eight-hour drive down to the city? Uh, 
yeah, it's, it's about uh, 450, uh, 400 miles, I think, down there. So, yeah, it's a good eight-hour drive from Buffalo Ridge. The, corner, the, corner there on the diagonal. Folks, yeah, diagonal. And folks at home, the way Craig Bell drives, it's only about five hours. Uh, four. four. <laughs> he's, he's, one of, he's one of my guys then. I, 100 I miles an hour, that's four hours, you know. <laughs> That's Air Bell. That's, that's right. <laughs> Air Bell, Art Bell, CV1. That's right. Uh, so so playing a little tennis, like I said, yeah. uh, so you watched, you know, Johnny Mack, you know, Vetus, Gerolitis, all the good New Yorkers. Like I said, did you ever venture down to the Open just out of curiosity to Forest Hills? No, it was never really anything that would have, you know, again, because it was such a peripheral sport for me. Um, you know, I just followed it a little bit. But, you know, if I was going to go somewhere, it would have been more like to Yankee Stadium or to to uh, Shea or something like that. And, of course, over to Fenway. The first time I saw Fenway was, you know, in the late 70s. And so it was more, you know, I would, would way more prefer to go to some baseball parks back in the day. But mm-hmm. it wasn't until, gotcha. you know, as we'll, we'll address, you know, the transitions in life brought me more to, to want to be at Flushing Meadow and so on. So have you been, you've been to Fenway, I'm sure, how many times probably? Uh, and I'm kind of countless now, you know, I mean, uh, try to, you know, been there over the years. Uh, my wife and I lived in West Point for three years from 95 to 98. So that was a quick trip over to Boston, easy. So I could go over and catch some games. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went up with my younger son, uh, you know, during one of the hurricanes here. We were kind of going for a quick weekend, one game up back because uh, he'd never been to Fenway. And then uh, we left, the hurricane hit. We ended up staying for like five days and three games. So we're actually pretty well. Have you ever sat on the Green Monster? Uh, not set on the Green Monster. That's still one that's uh, that might be like a high school graduation present for my younger son. Oh, or something. Wow. Now, I'm for a special moment for that one. Well, yeah. you, you've, you've turned him into a Red Sox fan, huh? not a Tampa Bay uh, fan or the Rays. Or, the Rays. Yeah. My older son kind of, you know, kind of did the, you know, what sons, I think, or a lot of times kids will, will either get on board with you or they'll do a, a 180 on you and go the other direction. So he chose the local route and went with the Tampa. And, uh, and I don't fight him for that. I, I give him that one. But my younger son, I was able to kind of uh, coerce into being a Red Sox fan. So, uh, <laughs> so did, have you been to Yankee Stadium? Old and new? Uh, old and new. Yep. Yep. Favorite, favorite uh, other than Fenway, what's your favorite baseball stadium? You know, I like Camden Yards a lot. Um, let me think here. Uh, you know, Jake, what would I call Jacobs Field in Cleveland? You know, pretty, pretty a big fan of Kansas City. You know, I really enjoy Kansas City. Been out to Anaheim, which is a great park out there. Um, so those are a couple of ones I've been able to touch. I haven't been to Wrigley yet, which, you know, oh, yeah. as far as parks, uh, it's kind of really on a bucket list. i got to get to Wrigley. And so, but those are a couple of the parks that I really have enjoyed over the years. What about the Sundome? You don't like the Sundome? Oh, geez. You know, that. <laughs> It's Tampa. Nobody, That's nobody, Tampa. nobody actually oh, likes it. You don't, go there and, you don't go there and sweat. So it's, you know, it's probably not as bad as people say it is, but it's certainly not anything, you know, all that uh, Obscure baseball yeah. reference. Yeah. See, I had to pull yeah. that one out. I figured out that uh, he's, a, he's a baseball aficionado. Yeah. Have you been to Ranger Ballpark? Have you been to our ballpark? Yeah, I've been to the one. Yeah, when I was stationed at Fort Hood, a uh, buddy of mine uh, was another guy, you know, guy I was stationed with. He was also a Red Sox fan, so we went up one day. One weekend and, and caught a Red Sox and Rangers game uh, in the park up there. Yeah, so, you know, so in the early days, it was probably around 93, 94, yeah. Oh, right when the ballpark was new. We're getting a new Brand ballpark, new. you know. We're, AC, uh, you know that. Yeah, we're, right getting, to the we're getting all fancy. Yeah, over here. Well, we're going to invite you out. So anytime that you want to come, baseball on me. Well, we're we're going. We're going to see, we'll see the and Rangers. I think, I think that this podcast somehow will be recorded in eternity, so I have this on record, yes, right? You do. It's on. And we're gonna get a boomstick too, so you can look up boomstick and you've got to eat one all by yourself. 
So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> My daughter's eating one. She, her and a friend. You look at it. It's it's indigestion waiting to happen. Let's put it that way. It's it's dinner for two, maybe three. Also, <laughs> and then dinner somewhere else. You know, you're going to go. Oh. But you know, we love baseball, and, and thank you for humoring me in the baseball thank you, world. Yeah. All right, so so you're down in Florida Southern. All right, then uh, you go off to the military for about ten years. Is that correct? Uh, for me, a little less than that. Yes, it was about uh, late 1987 until I got hurt in 94 and then retired in 1995. Mm. So, seven plus years officially in. And then it was, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my wife, Terry, um, you know, was still in for another three years. So, eventually out in 98 for her. And that's when uh, we, you know, we just moved from our last duty station at West Point down here to Lakeland, Florida. And just kind of said, let's settle in, you know, get a family. What was the thought process of going into the military? I, were you not, you were not drafted high enough in the uh, MLB draft or were you thinking? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, not, not even. Yeah. There was like a quick bypass on that. Uh, Walker name. It was like, you know, I don't even think it was in print anywhere. So uh, in regards to the drafting, uh, I was better off being drafted into the military than I would have been drafted into baseball. So uh, <laughs> they don't even have a draft anymore. So there, there goes to show you how good I was. It's but a, anyway, um, but the military was just something kind of, my, you know, a good friend of mine I went to school with in, in college at Florida Southern, he was in the ROTC program, and, and he was a year ahead of me. This was one of the big influences, and uh, he left, and so I had my senior year, and while he was away doing his early lieutenant, you know, life things, you know, we, we stayed in touch with one of their correspondents, and, and I was like, wow, you know, that just sounds like cool stuff. And so, but I, I got a job right out of college with some other guys that I knew uh, that were about three, four years older than me that started the business and needed somebody young and, and energetic to do some traveling and sales with them or for them. Um, and it was fun and great, but I was like, well, this is not, I don't think a real career for me. And, but as I continued to correspond with my one good friend, uh, I was like, yeah, I think that's what I need to be doing. I really just felt this pull. And, um, and so, you know, I just kind of started looking into it and then, you know, said, you know what, I think that's what I want to do. So I went to a recruiting office and said, I'd like to, you know, go to OCS and, uh, and get commissioned. And so the process began. It's a fairly lengthy process, a lot to do. And then but you just keep grinding. And so I had the opportunity to do that and uh, eventually got shipped out to Fort uh, Jackson, South Carolina to do basic training. And then from there over to Fort Benning, Georgia for officer candidate school. And from officer candidate school, got commissioned. And then off to Fort Benning, Georgia for uh, what they call your yeah. officer basic course. And so I was commissioned in the engineers, Corps of Engineers. And, uh, and from there, you know, got stationed in Germany. So that was the first, you know, that was the first phase of my, my military life. What part, what part of the military were you, uh, did you serve in? Is that a uh, so the Army, so Army Corps of Engineers. Okay. And so when first duty assignment was over in Germany, was with the 8th Infantry Division. Um, you know, got deployed from there uh, during the first desert storm. And so did a little time in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and then came back, and then once once I came back from that, finished off the tour in Germany, then it was uh, back to school here in the United States, uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And then from Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri was when I got the, uh, the appointment to um, Fort, uh, Fort Hood, Texas, and mm-hmm. second part. Uh, yeah. So Fort, Fort Hood, that, that's like the uh, resort, uh, uh, you know, like just a unbelievable place to, to go, lay at the beach, you know, kind of see the ocean. <laughs> you know. Fort Hood? Fort, Fort Hood. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you got it. Boy, that, I, I couldn't have described it any better. No, you really nailed it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's one of the largest Army posts in the yeah. world. Uh, two divisions there. Uh, really an impressive post. Um, at the time, it was the 1st Cavalry Division, 2nd Armored Division. I believe the 2nd Armored Division is no longer uh, one of the active 
was an interesting, you know, um, premonition that the, the, the nickname for Second Armed Division is Hell on Wheels. Mm. Uh, and here I am. So, well, for those of you who don't know where Colleen, Texas is, it's I wouldn't call it the a destination resort by any means. Uh, it's kind of. It's, it's a, I would say it's a suburb of a suburb of a suburb of Austin. Yes, maybe. Yeah? Maybe. <laughs> more and more, I'm sure, it's getting that way. Yeah, so head, head an hour north of Austin, and you're there a little bit mm. south of Wake. Right? Which is warmer, where you live right now in Lakeland or Fort Hood? Uh, you know, I mean, Texas has, you guys know, Texas gets pretty scorching hot. I, sure. I think we're on equal par in that regard to just raw heat. Um, you know, we're pretty humid here and, and obviously wetter. Um, but, uh, but as far as just straight up heat, Texas holds its own. And, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it the scenic, uh, destination that, uh, maybe Honolulu might be, or yeah. maybe, uh, uh, you know, maybe New York city or someplace like that. It's, yeah. it's a nice place to be from, but just, it's good to be passing through, I'm sure. But anyway, yeah. so, so now that you go, um, uh, into the military, uh, about 94. Tell us what the, uh, uh, were you, your parachuting, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So actually it was interesting. It was uh, some of my lieutenants, I was a captain, uh, company commander at the time, and some of my lieutenants and I, uh, you know, all of whom had been through airborne, you know, airborne school together. Um, we were just doing some, some sport jumping at what they call, you know, Fort Hood Sport Parachute Club. So mm-hmm. it was just it wasn't actually a military jump, but it was still kind of an association with being there at Fort Hood and kind of doing some things that we do in the military. Sure. But anyway, um, I just had uh, had a jump where my parachute malfunctioned. And so instead of everything being nice and cushy and me just floating down like you normally do, um, the shoot inverted. And so I was just mm-hmm. kind of roaring down a lot faster than what you're supposed to be doing. Um, the landing was good. Everything was, was in order except, uh, you know, probably travel. 40, 50, 60 miles an hour compared to, you know, maybe whatever light little miles an hour you're traveling and everything's working properly. So uh, just just a massive impact, um, broke both bones, both legs below the knee, uh, burst fracture of L1, L2 in my in my vertebra. Mm-hmm. Um, so a spinal, spinal area injury, uh, but not an immediate, uh, you know, breakage of my spinal cord. So for, for about 18 hours, I still had, you know, function, feeling, everything like that. But because there was so much trauma to the to the region, um, that's when the paralysis uh, kind of kicked in. Um, you know, and so in the beginning days, you know, right in those early days, it was like, all right, this is not good, and, and that's gone away. Um, but I think there was a mentality of, yeah, I think, you know, that, that could maybe just as much come back. And, uh, of course, after a period of time and some surgeries and stabilization of my spine, um, you know, the reality set in that that was not going to be the case and, and that I was going to be a, you know, a T12 paraplegic, uh, which, you know, means, you know, a full-time life in a wheelchair. And, um, you know, you just start coming to terms with that. And that doesn't take, uh, it's not an overnight process, yeah. but it is a process. And, uh, you know, if you're fortunate like I was to have, you know, family and friends and support system in place, uh, and you get through something like that. And, and I, I, like I say, I'm fortunate. So, uh, yeah, I had an early, and I just I share, you know, if, if folks ask me about my story, I'll just share that, you know, in the early going, when I was in the intensive care unit, when I was literally first injured, um, the one thing that kind of set me on a path to this isn't good, but it is the worst thing in the world is, is of the six beds in the ICU that were occupied at the time. I was the only one that was conscious and could talk to my doctors and could talk to whomever was coming in and going. And so you, you look around, you say, yeah, I'm not, 
in a good shape here, but I'm not as bad as feeling like because oh. you know there were some other souls that were, were in tougher spots than I was at the time. So you kind of get get a good perspective pretty early on, or at least that was the perspective that I took. And with that perspective, were there any affirmations you made daily back then? And how does that compare to some of the things that um, that you say to yourself as self-talk now? I mean, this is yeah. close to 30 years or 24 years yeah. later. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think I was doing a lot of affirmations then. I mean, that was a, that was an observation that I do I do you know to this day recall having. Um, but it, it's just it was a, it was more of a fight. I mean, it's more of a I don't know what my future is going to be because there is a lot of uncertainty with it, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's just about trying to get healthy and that's physical. I think you're really focusing on the physical health health first. You know, can I get back to being physically healthy because I'm broken physically? And then then once you start to get those pieces put back together, you realize, well, I'm, I'm broken more than just physically. I'm, I'm broken, you know, emotionally and, and every other way you could probably, you know, be broken when you have such a traumatic injury. Yeah. But um, you, you then you start maybe focusing on those areas as well. And I think, again, I, I kind of alluded to the fact that family, friends, you know, those just those support systems, if, if you're fortunate to have them like I was, um, that just makes it all the easier. And, and um, you know, I just you just look at your options and you say, all right, you know, I can I can take the woe is me approach. I can take the I'm down a set approach or I can say, you know, uh, hey, second set, let's go. Let's get this thing back to even. Let's take it to three um, just to kind of just into a little tennis. I, I love it. I wondered if you'd go baseball or tennis, and either way, that was inspiring. And thank you. I mean, that's that's a shot for all of us. Um, whether we're dealing with um, things that have to do with COVID nineteen or absolutely um, uh, life changing things like what you're uh, what you're what you've come through, it's remarkable. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just kind of how you kind of get through it and um so like i say but and then it's just yeah there's there's the day by day and then it turns into week and months and and here we are 25 years later you know so that's that's just kind of how it happens for those of you who just joined the podcast we're talking with uh terry walker's uh husband paul walker paul walker she allows you to be her husband right (laughs) yes yes she's 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 all good with that (laughs) noted uh wheelchair uh champion uh not from uh, wanting to be a wheelchair champion, but you found wheelchair tennis then after after injury in ninety four when when did uh, wheelchair tennis evolve? Kind of tell us the process I mean did you play the other typical sports basketball uh, you know did you what, what did you do with your time then before wheelchair tennis question so uh, as mentioned, uh, Terry and I went to West Point, New York, uh, where she was going to be stationed from ninety five to ninety eight and so while up there, I got involved with an organization called Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association. So they're a chapter of the PBA, which is the Paralyzed Veterans of America. And so um, they had a a sports and rec department. And um, what I had tried to do, um, I really didn't know anything about adaptive sports. Um, But I did, uh, I ended up going to Boston and I did have a, a racing chair built for me by a guy named Bobby Hall was kind of a legend in the in the world of wheelchair racing and, and had a, a business of building wheel you know, racing chairs and so because that was one of the only sports that I kind of knew about adaptive wise I said yeah all right let me let me try racing and so I got this beautiful chair and I started kind of getting in it and training a little bit and doing a couple of small races but I gotta tell you fellas I mean I you know, having growing up uh, being a three-sport guy in high school which was which was baseball basketball and soccer you know, I came to the realization that I was a ball-oriented sports guy mm. and so Coordination, now, yeah. catching, throwing, passing. Yeah, creativeness. I mean, not that 
not to take anything away from anybody in track and cycling and swimming where it's kind of like a straight line sport and it's to go. That's kind of not how it was wired. And so I needed something that, you know, kind of this childlike mind to, to be occupied. And I needed, I needed a ball, to be honest with you. And basketball really didn't appeal to me at all, although I played a lot of basketball. Um, I just didn't think the idea of meeting nine other people in chairs, uh, that wasn't appealing to me. Whereas racing initially and like this is just me this is something i can do um so in 97 though i got invited to this wheelchair tennis camp down at flushing meadows you know at, at the home of, of u.s tennis in, in the in flushing meadows there at the national campus or at the national tennis center and so I, I didn't even know that the sport of wheelchair tennis you know existed i'd never seen it never heard of it and so i said yeah you know i'll go down and so i went and uh and i was you know saw it for the first time and i, and I would say that within the first hours of seeing it and, and having it presented to me in, in a you know in a in a lesson type format and a, you know it was it was like I think this is the sport you know and again having had that um, background in tennis enough of a background in tennis having played pretty much all my life you know from the high school days or growing up days a good friend of mine in college was on the tennis team and me and I you know played around with it a little bit I did actually play when I was over in Germany and so I always kept a racket in my hand to some extent so it was never you know a completely foreign thing for me anymore and so once I saw it uh, I was it was being taught by a guy by the name of Randy Snow one of your Texas legends legend the Federer of wheelchair tennis around here at least Westman, you know uh, you know an absolute genius uh, in, in so many ways a guy that who ended up becoming a really close personal friend of mine some years later um, but you know I saw it and I said that's it and so then from that point on in 
great sport. Is there is there a difference between coaching able bodied versus wheelchair, or is there basically an athlete's an athlete? Does it matter? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and, and to some extent, you know, I just did a was on a podcast here uh, or uh, a, a PD call, player development call with a bunch of fourteen year olds from the the. Um, training center east which is up in flushing meadows you know everything like that and just a couple days ago and and that same question was asked um and so there's many similarities you know from the from the neck up there's a lot of similarities you know so the what it is is from the neck down where where the dissimilarities happen you know it's obviously you know the footwork and everything uh but the but the pushing of the chair and some of the tactics are a little bit different in wheelchair tennis but by and large when you really start to boil it down it becomes tennis and uh and those that are kind of astute and know the game when they watch it certainly at the higher levels where it's being you know played pretty well you can see more similarities than you'll see dissimilarities um so a lot of a lot of things are the same but there's a few things that are different so would you consider yourself is there offense and defense you know can there be people who go out there and just try to smack people off the court and then other people who are just out there looping balls and kind of grinding it out or is there a difference like that yeah 100% the same in that you know players have playing styles so you've got your your baseliners your your aggressive baseliners your all court players you've got your walls you've got your you know big servers uh, obviously serving volleying is not an option much um, but uh, yeah I mean you have all the playing styles that you know we see in the able body game are really replicated in in the wheelchair game and it's just you know kind of how that individual player sees them sees themselves and how they want to kind of impose themselves on the court so very very similar in that regard so what did Randy do that was was he just such a great mover in the chair because I saw him play I, right it, it was like it was fascinating watching that guy to me you could tell he was a cut above everybody yeah. else he was way what did he do differently that nobody else was really able to do now maybe it is today there, people can do that but what what did Randy really do back in the day that was so that made that set him apart well you know so for those who maybe don't know uh you know Randy was kind of an already up-and-coming young tennis player in Texas who at the age of um 16 maybe maybe 18 16 18 somewhere in that ballpark you know suffered an accident where a bale of hay you know one of the big big bales of hay from from an arm in texas fell on him and crushed him and uh so he became very similar to me uh pretty close in the level of injury uh paraplegic um but because he'd had a great tennis playing background he decided to take it into the to the world of wheelchair tennis so um i think what he did really well he won he just really was astute in regards to knowing the game he was really a genius on the court for just tactically knowing and understanding the game but then he was also one of the first players back in the earlier days of, of wheelchair tennis who just kind of professionalized it and really trained and, and really tried to hone his craft and and just you know you know the amount of time that he put into practice and everything like that as opposed to i think a lot of the other players back in the day when it was still starting um he was one of the first professionals the guys that was just you know relentless with training and, and wanting to be you know a perfectionist on the court so if he needed to hit a backhand down the line which was one of his specialty shots um you know when you gave him a foot he takes six inches you know i mean you know and that's that's how good he was and that's how precise he was and uh, he just he just took it to another level so i know i know like in hockey what separates usually the the pro level from the minor leaguers is skating is it moving in the wheelchair being able to maneuver the wheelchair like like a runner you know a normal able-bodied person is that what separates it or is it is it really just practicing is it uh, you know what 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 is it that really separates somebody that can really uh, hit that down the line shot is it 
you know, can can everybody do it? Or you know, I'm I don't know what I'm trying to ask. I guess is it? No, I I've got you 100. It absolutely relates to just uh, the the similarities with how many balls can you get to, you know, on your feet or in the chair. And so the mobility skills, you know, the, what we call chair skills, yeah, you know, the, the best, you know, the elite players have phenomenal chair skills. And so, you know, it's it, that their ability to either get one more ball back or because their chair skills are so good, it puts them in a position more often to be able to hit. Maybe you would call it lower percentage shots, but those mm. are the ones that are going to make the difference in separating themselves from from the opponents. And so uh, chair skills are absolutely paramount to, to their ability to, to play at a high level. Then do you, do you practice those skills more so? That, would you say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to set my racket down and you practice, you know, moving, are there move, movement drills in the chair that you can do that you teach, you know, players? Does that make sense? Well, one hundred percent. Just what we call pushing. What we call pushing drills and chair, chair chair drills. So it's like, yep. A lot of times when we start practices with the players, you know, you know, as with every player, they're like racket in hand and balls are bouncing, and they're like, whoa, 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 stop. Wait a minute. <laughs> Back down. We got some work to do before we we start having the fun. And uh, you know, and again, and then it's the ones that separate themselves again are the ones that embrace that. That say, all right, yeah, I know I've got to be a great pusher in the chair, so let's go. Let's let's put some time in pushing the chair, uh, learning how to turn the chair properly, learning how to take the right angles when they're recovering in and out of the court. Um, you know, those are the critical thing, critical things. Just like any able-bodied player with footwork, you know, the, the players we see with the better footwork, they're the ones that are in balance. They're the ones that are when they're getting ready to strike a ball are. are balanced and in a good position same thing in the in the chair you, you know you don't want to take a ball out of the strike zone if you don't have to and it's your chair skills that'll get you a ball in the strike zone more than it won't yeah so kind of like in hoosiers when they they didn't get to shoot for like about a week and they go hey coach when are we going to shoot and he goes mm-hmm. nah, we ain't we're not there <laughs> yeah and they, we're not hitting and tennis balls and it's a great thing because they what did he use in that movie he used, he used the chairs yes, remember him having chairs parked yes. on the court right yeah no i've watched that movie Umpteen times. I, I love Hoosiers. Anytime it's coming on. One of on, the top right. sports films. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Gene Hackman yep. was great. I mean, that was oh. just a, just an unbelievable movie that uh, I still I, I can watch. I I like the old classics. I'm an old guy. I like history, and you like history, too, Paul. So I yeah. would assume you're an old movie guy, too. You know it. I'm a movie guy. Yeah, I am 100%. So we can get into we can get into sports movies. We can get into history movies. Whatever you want to go. Oh, yeah. we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, we're, Trust us. We're, we're, that's, we're, we're, uh, we're that's, setting the table. That's the third set. We're still... <laughs> Are we just finishing the first set? Yeah, we're, we finished the first set. We're in the yep, second set. Second. We're, we're getting into life after the injury, which is right, the second set. Second basically. set. All right. So, so now, now that that uh, you've uh, uh, you're coaching, uh, you're playing, uh, how, you know, really, what's uh, you know, your career? You played for, what over ten years, maybe fifteen years? Um, yeah, nineteen ninety-seven to yeah. two thousand. I, yeah, so 2005 was the last time I played a, uh, a tournament. So um, just about eight years there, I guess. Did you did the ITF circuit? Is it all all you know the U.S. Open, Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon? Did they, did they play Wimbledon and and the French in the wheelchair divisions? Yeah. So uh, just to get everybody up to speed on that, yeah. currently uh, Uniqlo, which is the it was the great brand that uh, you know Federer is now with, and uh, Djokovic and several of the other big names. Um, clothing company out of Japan. Uniqlo is the sponsor and title sponsor for the, for the wheelchair tour, uh, wheelchair tour. And so that's been in existence now for, and a big partnership for, for a good many years now. And so, um, yeah, so that, you know, I played on that and, and now 
working with many players uh, within the U.S. program that are fighting their way up and down the ranks of the of the Unipro ITF tour now. And so that's kind of where I where I spend my time in the wheelchair world these days. How many tournaments are on the on the circuit with with Uniqlo? Oh, Is that well, well, you hundreds? know what? I mean, it's it's we they're played in about forty different countries around the world. I mean, really, it, it's a calendar year that is very similar to the ATP and WTA. So sure. starting in January, you know, there's a number of tournaments uh, down under. And to answer your question that you kind of were talking about, yeah, it's in all four Grand Slams now. Sure. So you have a couple of tournaments that lead up to the Australian Open Grand sure. Slam, uh, and then the tour kind of swings back. And we have some big tournaments in the states in March in the spring. Uh, Baton Rouge being one of them, Rome, Georgia being another. Those are a couple of big t- uh, tournaments on the IT. Tour, um, then as you get into the spring, um, yeah, they, these are happening. But there are tournaments all over the world. They're not just in one continent at a time, but they're, they're happening all over. But then you know, summer months, the tour kind of swings into Europe, where all the European championships are because mm. the weather's everything like that. So now players migrate to Europe and kind of you know just pop from one country to another, you know, hitting different, you know, maybe the Belgian Open and then down to the Swiss Open and over to a tournament in France or maybe down to a tournament in Italy. Um, they're all over Europe throughout the months. And then the tour kind of swings back again into the States again in, in September. There's a couple of big uh, tournaments in September to, of course, include the U.S. Open. Um, but then we have a wheelchair-specific U.S. Open in St. Louis each year. And we finish, you know, there's a, another great tournament in Hilton Head in September. So that's kind of how the tour runs, but they're in South America, Europe, Africa, all the continents except uh, Antarctica. Maybe <laughs> we'll start that Antarctic tour. <laughs> the Arctic and Antarctic tour. <laughs> the North and South Pole. <laughs> you you will be uh, sliding when you make those turns. You'll be drifting, Paul Walker. Drifting. There it is. Buffalo. I'm all about all, all about the drifts. I knew you seven. would. Yeah, I figured so. So at, at Wimbledon, I'm curious. Do you use a different ball, or do you play with the the uh, the ball just like the pros? Yeah, I'm interested in the bounce. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So, so just to give a rundown on the on the surfaces, you know, hard court is probably the more preferred surface for the sure. majority of players. It just it just responds really well to when you push. You're yes. able to maintain some chair uh, no. mobility. Yeah. Momentum. Uh, the clay is tough uh, because it really eats into the momentum, so you can get some pushing going, but then as soon as you stop it, you grind to a halt pretty quick. Uh, but ultimately, the toughest uh, surface to push on is the grass. So yes. where players have the most trouble is, is at Wimbledon. So much like playing on grass, the points are shorter. The guys that tend to serve bigger uh, in the game, guys and girls who tend to serve bigger, tend to do well at Wimbledon. So it really holds uh, that kind of pattern, in essence. And so the players that get a lot more balls back in play, you know, do well at the French. And then uh, those who are kind of your, your most well-rounded players, you know, really enjoy probably the Australian and the U.S. Open the most. Now, do, you, do you get... To put a little like uh, at Wimbledon, they they put little nubs on their shoes. Do you get that on your on the the tires themselves? Do you, they allow that opportunity, that tolerance, to be able to move a little bit better? Yeah, no, I don't think there's any specific tires. I think some players do use some different tires, maybe with some little different tread, but not not like a real nub. I mean, uh, any kind of additional nub would really be put in a little extra friction. Essentially, is what okay. it would be doing. So that's what really would be slowing you down as, as mm. much as it might. Yeah, like at Wimbledon, I used to—I know they used to wear spikes. They used to wear track spikes, or or they'd have to request it sometimes they, too. Yes, like it's wet, may we use yeah, spikes? Right, and then yeah. eventually they, they discontinued that. But now they've got the little nubs, little nodules. So I didn't yeah. know if uh, a different tire, different tread might be used for 
clay versus like there's clay court shoes versus you know, Wimbledon little nubs and then back to the U.S. Open and back to Australia. They're just normal uh, regular type shoes. So I didn't know if there was any different type of balls, maybe type, different type of uh, tires, tread. What about chairs even? Is there a different chair? Versus, no, the, the, the adjustment that players would make, uh, for most of the players, there is a fifth, what we call a fifth wheel. There's a wheel on the back side of the chair. Okay. Um, we call it an anti-tip wheel. So that allows you to get back in the chair for serves, for overheads, things like that. Sure. Um, but it will prevent you from then going over the back end. Um, so for that, that wheel there, the adjustment that a lot of players will make will be raising or lowering that depending on the, the surface that they're playing on because um, they want the chair to ultimately be pushing on just the two big wheels and then the two front caster wheels, um, which is a, which is similar to the back wheel. But they ultimately don't want all five wheels on at the same time. You want there to be a little bit of play. If you have all five wheels on at the same time, you you spin out ultimately. But uh, so they want a little bit of play in the chair. But how they adjust that play will depend on the surface that they're playing on. Some in the term is tippy. So how tippy they want that chair to be or not to be uh, depends a lot of times on what surface they're playing on. So you can raise and lower your chair also too. So you can actually go down like a you'd be in like a race car per se versus sitting a little higher maybe for. A, diff- a different surface like U.S. Open, maybe you might want to go a little bit lower at Wimbledon, let's say, maybe uh, four or five inches. Not, not the chair itself, no. They won't make adjustments to the chair itself. Just that back wheel, oh, that'll change okay. the area. Gotcha. I mean, because they're, they're, they're wanting to be in that same position that they're they're used to training in, you know, where they're sitting. Because a lot of it's got to do with balance. So as you're sitting in the chair, and depending on disability, too, because wheelchair tennis, uh, you know, the criteria for wheelchair tennis is that you have a permanently diagnosed mobility impairment so lower extremity impairment that allows you to to play wheelchair tennis but that's a myriad of things i mean you've got a lot of people who walk um that you know can can walk not really efficiently but can so they have weight bearing abilities you've got amputees you've got spinal cord injuries you know you've got this really big laundry list of players that play and each one is unique and so where my balance point is the higher i sit the more tippy I can get sometimes. The lower I sit, I push, but I'm way down. So maybe my nerve's not as effective. So there's a lot of variables that go in, and it's all dependent on that individual and uh, how they how they set up their chair uh, for their optimum use. Yeah, yeah it, it reminds me of David Good, one of our mutual friends and a yeah. prior guest. He is he's got sort of a foot in both worlds, wheelchair and adaptive. Yeah, he, 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 he's an amputee, MBT. but he can also. Yeah. He's, he's able-bodied, I guess, to where he can play with a prosthetic. Uh, and I asked him one t- time, do you, do you prefer? He goes, actually, he prefers in the wheelchair. I think he, he, can, he can go either either with the prosthetic or in the, in the chair, but I think he prefers the chair. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, that, that's, that's always a, a tough one. I understand the mentality of folks, uh, especially amputees, um, who, who look at the, the wheelchair as like an additional level of disability. But ultimately, the path for tennis in a wheelchair is really clean, meaning that, from start as a beginner all the way up to Grand Slam and everything in between exists, and, and that's pretty unique. So it's really, uh, I would say, the most professionalized of all the adaptive sports um, because, again, you know, the pathway from, as I mentioned, a kid who could dream about being a Grand Slam champion one day is no different than any other kid in the world. So if you're growing up and you get to tennis early in your life in a wheelchair, you could say, I'm going to play at Wimbledon someday, or I want to play at the U.S. Open someday, or I want to play in the Paralympics someday. Mm-hmm. And that path is, is ready for you, and it's there, and it's available. So I think that's one of the great things about wheelchair tennis um, and, and 
why it's been so successful. Did it, did it help growing up playing athletics, or did it, it didn't matter really at this point? You know, because you were said you were a three-sport guy. You did soccer, you did basketball, you did baseball. Did that help in any way, or did, did it really not? Does it matter? You, know, you, you can take somebody. I think it helped a lot, and I know you guys are tennis guys, but I think you understand the importance of athleticism, and sure. I think a lot of times, Tennis today, uh, or not just tennis, but in a lot of sports where it's become commonplace to specialize, uh, it's a big mistake, I think. And so, I, I you know I, I really encourage any any players that I work with, if you know they can take up another sport or spend a little time in another sport, I think you learn so much by just becoming a better athlete. Your mind is wiring in a different way, oftentimes by playing a different sport, but ultimately. You know, if you if you do end up putting your eggs in the in the tennis basket, ultimately you're going to be better served having you know developed your brain and your mind and your body to be an athlete, and then just you know kind of ultimately specialize in tennis. And I think you know there are some great athletes in in the sport of tennis, obviously who played basketball and, yeah. and played soccer and done other things. Um, but you know they found their place in tennis eventually. I, th- I think Rafa played uh, soccer, didn't he? Well, it's, uh, it's very, very kind of you to, to point to me, but I was uh, I was pretty good in the, in the football, but but I'm happy. I'm very, very happy I've chosen tennis. No, yeah, it would be Rafa. It was a good decision, Rafa. I think you made the right choice, and I know Uncle Tony was inspirational in that and, and really influential. So uh, you know, and please tell him I said hello because it's been a while since I've seen him. But it's good to hear your voice again, and and it's always good time uh, you know to spend some time with you, Rafa. So thanks for for checking in with us tonight. Pablito, thank you. I will, I will, for sure, I will tell Tio Tony, uh, Tio Miguel, I will tell all my friends, uh, hello from Paul Walker, no? Yeah. Florida. Florida, <laughs> USA. Thank you. Muchas gracias. <laughs> so you didn't know that we had all sorts of talent around here, did you? I don't have any I, I suspected that we did. I'm just waiting for it to come out. <laughs> do, do, do you do any voices? Are you a voice guy? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I'm a voice guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so now, moving on to so when you're you're coaching the girls like at Florida Southern, I'm interested. Did do because uh, I know that like I said you played a little tennis uh, growing up, but not before you're co- is coaching coaching. Let's put it that way. Wheelchair yeah. or yeah. able bodied is coaching coaching. I think it is. I think ultimately it is. You know, I mean, it's it's one, and and I had. This question asked of me the other day in, the, in that uh, call I was on with, with some of the young players up at up TCE. Um, and so, yes, it is because, you know, and they asked me, you know, well, how do you get, um, how do you develop a rapport with your player? I said, well, first and foremost, I like to let the players that I work with know that, that before um, my time with them as a tennis coach, them as a player, I, I want to get to care, let them know I care about them as a person. I mean, that, that's got to be, to me, just coaching philosophy-wise, that's got to be first and foremost. One, I care about you as a person. I want to see you be a successful person. I want to see you be a successful young man or a successful young lady. You know, and then on then after that, once they know that I care about them as an individual, now let's focus on what we're here about, which is the tennis. And, and so I'll do what I can as a coach to help you be the best tennis player, whether you're a wheelchair player or a body player, um, that you can be. And that, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm supposed to be trained to do and specialize in. Um, but you know, I care about you as a person first and foremost. So that's just kind of been my, my approach with the players. But you're right. I think ultimately it's just coaching. It's coaching. And uh, I, I hear um, adaptive and wheelchair players use the word able-bodied, and you shortened it to body players. Is that the abbreviation? Oh, no, I think able-bodied. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I might have just been talking quickly there oh, okay. with my yeah. New York time. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think 
we, we generally use the term able-bodied. Able-bodied, you know, just, yeah. Just yeah. to be able to clarify who we're, we're talking about in that conversation, yeah. Because yeah. coaching, I would think that it doesn't – it's all above the above the, the neck anyway. I mean, I think that once you become yeah, an athlete of any kind of caliber, everybody's got the same basic skills, but it's basically the mental aspect that, that you go into – whether whether you're in a wheelchair or whether you're standing up, you know that that ultimately. I mean, there was probably a lot of pressure. You played all the major championships, and tell tell us about one of your best experiences. Maybe uh, was it at the U.S. Open? Yeah, pick Wimbledon? a slam. You yeah, pick. Yeah, you yeah, pick. Come on, tell us something. Kind of what what you what you really find cool. I I know you know. I kind of think I know where you're going, but I just want to see if it's what uh, I was doing a little research. Yeah, on. hit us with your favorite. Well, so so really, there's only one because I've only ever played in, in one Grand Slam, and that was the U.S. Open in 2005. Mm-hmm. It was the, the first year that they had a wheelchair division at, at the U.S. Open, and so that was, so I think uh, the Australian was one of the first to have Australian and French were the first to have wheelchair players, and then the U.S. Open got on board in 2005. I was it was just at the end of my play days, and so uh, and I got a wild card to play in the U.S. Open. So anyway. Yeah, maybe this is what you're alluding to, uh, but uh, I played a guy uh, who was in the ITF Tennis Hall of Fame by the name of David Hall, a longtime world number one from Australia. A, you know, one of the again one of the legends in the sport of wheelchair tennis. Great guy, by the way, too. Um, so I played David. Uh, he was at that time world number one, so I played him in the first round at the U.S. Open. And and I I geez, I can't remember the score. Uh, there was some guy. Uh, in the match had six and then he had six again and then the other guy had like uh zero and then like zero and so it was it was you know and i don't know what the audience is here but i would say you would probably categorize it as a full-on ass whooping yeah that that's it is what it is so yeah so i was just a little bit outmatched actually not even a little it it was grossly outmatched so anyway that night um being the fun-loving guy that I am, you know, we're all staying in, uh, in, in uh, the Grand Hyatt in, uh, in New York. Yeah. And so I think, you know, David's here at the Grand Hyatt, just like I am. You know, he puts his, his pants on, you know, one leg at a time, just like I do. Let me give him a call. And so I called his room. I called the Grand Hyatt. I'm in there. And I say, hey, can I have David Hall's room? And, and David answers. And you can tell right away, you know, the Australian, you know, hello, David. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is. I, I just made up a name. I said I was calling from the from the New York Post, and that I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk to him about his his match today. You know, and, and the excitement of wheelchair tennis being at the U.S. Open, and and you know, for the first time, everything is oh yeah, I'd love to talk to you, Mike. Be great, yeah, golf, loved it. I said so. Tell us a little bit about your match today, and he's like, well, you know, I had a good day today. You know, first opening round. I was like, well, tell me a little bit about your opponent. Oh, you know, Paul Walker, nice guy, you know, good player. You know, I said, well, you know, you, you handled him pretty easy, and uh, you know, why, well, you know, yeah, had a good day today, and, and it was pretty easy. And uh, you know, he didn't really even say it was pretty easy. He's like, you know, Paul put up a good fight, but you know, I think it was just a little too much for him today. And so as he continues to be so gracious and everything, like I continued to hone in on, well, tell us more about Paul. And he sounds like an interesting guy, and he's like, well, yeah, he's a nice guy, and everything like that. I've known him for a number of years now on the tour. I was like, wow. And so you, you know, you didn't feel bad about beating him so badly like that he's like wow you know i had to do what i had to do and you know it's like and i just kept grinding and grinding on tell me more about paul tell me more about paul and finally i just stopped kind of with with my pretend voice and then really took him in a direction that you know had to be so brutally you know obvious and he's like 
Somewhere on a on a podcast down under, uh, maybe Hall's telling the same story. Same, sto- same yeah. story. Paul Walker punched me, punched me at the Grand Hyatt. <laughs> got me. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if that's the only victory I get against David, I, I'll have to take it. He was he was a great guy, though. I mean, I all credit to David for one being a phenomenal player, but two being a, a really a great individual and uh, a true class act and everything like that. So, so all credit every well, way, shape, and form to David. Good, good on you for thinking of the post and. Uh, being a journalist for a few minutes there. That's really cool. I imagine it was pretty fun though, rolling in. Yeah. And you see, I mean, we've all been to the U S open and yeah. it's just to get there to play. That, that's an unbelievable accomplishment. So congratulations on that. Number one, because I don't think AJ and I, we, we didn't even sniff it. We, we had to buy no. tickets to get in. We, we didn't get invited. We didn't get the rest. Is, now you're a wild unique experience. Uh, you know, you, you, you've got the car service, yes. uh, you know, everything you got the locker rooms at, at, yeah. uh, at the tennis center there. I mean, it's just remarkable. Yeah. So to be, you know, you're getting ready for your match, you're in the locker room and here comes Agassi, you know, actually that's the year Agassi and Blake had that phenomenal yeah, yeah, uh, match. Yeah. Uh, I was up late getting ready to play the next day and you know, watching that match as it's going, you know, into the, Way hours of the yeah, night, I'm yeah. thinking I got to get to bed here. You know, I got a match tomorrow, <laughs> and uh, you know, but can't take your eyes off that that television or anything like that. But yeah, it's it's just such a remarkable experience. So um, it, it's something I'll never forget. Obviously, well, I, I was reading, reading about Larry Santos. Tell me about Larry Santos. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a great example of of something um, that that uh, you know, if there's anybody, there's any any tennis coaches that are listening tonight. So Larry Santos yeah. uh, is a is a tennis pro here in Lakeland, Florida. So when I moved to Lakeland in 1998, um, again it was just when I had just started kind of playing and was really having the bug now to be a player. And so we got to Lakeland and I kind of started tooling around town to say, you know, see if I could find somebody that would be willing to to work with me as a coach. And you know, I'm not saying that I didn't, you know, nobody turned me away or, or anything, but it was, you know, it's about that level of enthusiasm that you would want to hear or see from somebody when you ask them, hey, you know, you think you could, you know, maybe give me some lessons or be willing to work with me. You, I see what the situation is, and so I ended up going out to um, this place called at the time Imperial Lakes. It was it was one of the hotbeds of, of tennis here in Polk County at the time, or in in the 80s and 90s and. So late nineties, it was still up and running as a as a pretty nice little tennis center, and Larry was the head pro at, at Imperial Lakes, and so I made my way over there and, and introduced myself and just kind of told him what was going on in my life and what I was wanting to do a little bit, and he just showed so much enthusiasm. He's like, "Yeah, man," he's like, "You got a racket?" He's like, "Let's go," and and so he, you know, he became my coach, and and so um, he was the one that was willing to put time in and, and show enthusiasm, and and one of the things now that I'm wearing the coach's hat, we talk a lot about in wheelchair tennis, oftentimes the player is the one that has to initially coach the coach because mm-hmm. the coach may may not have had any experience and that was the case with Larry. He didn't have any experience with wheelchair tennis. He'd never seen it or done it or anything like that. He was just willing to, like me, learn you know, as we went along the journey together. And so um, it was just, I'm, I'm forever grateful to Larry for the time that he you know put in with me as a, as a coach and, and how much he taught me and how much I stole from him now that I'm a coach and how much I stole from him and, and use as a coach myself now. Um, and so in 2000, you know, I'll, I'll just reference back to that 2005 visit to, to the U.S. Open and, and my 
my ability to say to Larry, hey, um, I'm going to the U.S. Open and you're my coach, so you're coming with me. And how exciting it was for him to, to have that experience um, with me as, as my coach there and credentialed and, and uh, be in the locker room and seeing that you know, he's a tennis junkie, yeah. you know, much like you guys, and recognize everybody that's walking by. Hey, look, that's this. And, you know, just was really in a in a heavenly state for him to, to experience that. And I'm so grateful we got a chance to do that together. And, and as, as mentioned, just that's that's the approach that I think coaches should take. Somebody comes to you that's different, and but is showing that they they want to learn the sport or love the sport or get better at the sport. And and what level of enthusiasm you show them is is all the difference in the world. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the story with Larry, and he's he's always forever in my heart. That was a great that. story. I mean, yeah, I, I, that's I came remarkable. across that and I thought I, I got to ask you about that because we appreciate we're tennis coaches, yeah, like you are, and you know to to make somebody. You know, that's special and to recognize that, hey, this guy's going to, you know, appreciate what I'm doing and he helped me to get here and to recognize his accomplishment, not just your accomplishment. Hey, hey, good on you, is that awesome yeah, say for, yeah. for taking Larry with you. I'm, I know he, that was probably one of the best memories that he'll ever, he'll take to his grave. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. He was a New Jersey boy, you know, born and raised and stuff like that. So the open, you know, being up in that proximity was always something that kind of cool. And, uh, but yeah, to, to experience it from that more inside, you know, in, you're inside, you know, you get, like I say, you've got the credentials, oh, you yeah. can pretty much anywhere, do anything, bypass and, and go here and there, players lounge, you know, players, uh, everything. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, it's the top of the heap. Well, we, we get so little opportunity. I know when I was, I thought I was uh, something when I came out of college and I made a comment to uh, a paper in Oklahoma City. They were talking about uh, uh, background of what I was going to do in tennis. I was 1984, so I was 24. And I said, well, I'm going to take, a, I want to take one of my players to Wimbledon. I had no clue what that meant. I had, I just said, well, I'm going to take a player to Wimbledon. I was like, it's real easy to do. Like I'd never have been there, but you know, I could just, I can coach that. Well, I, I didn't ever do that. And for you, like I said, thinking about that, when I was reading the, that comment that you made in one of your interviews, I go, you get it. And I go, that's really a special for yeah. you, you know, to be able to make Larry's dream. He didn't get to play there necessarily, but he was there, had a credential. He was in the locker room and you took him there. I go, and I go, that's, I got to ask that, that uh, priceless. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's, that's a uh, big time right there. You and Larry must still be in touch, right? Yeah. You know, we get together for lunch, uh, you know, and occasionally he's kind of, uh, kind of a little bit of transition out of the tennis world um, in the last year and a half or so. Um, but uh, we still get together for lunch. Or, you know, we do, we do a wheelchair camp in October each year here in, uh, in Lakeland and in, in the over Florida Southern. Yeah. And so, you know, this year I said, Hey Larry, you know, we, we've got quite a few campers coming in, you know, I need another coach to handle a court. You think you could still do it old timer. And uh, you know, he was really excited to, to, he's like, anytime, anywhere you need me, Paul, he's like, I'd be happy to uh, do that. And so, um, you know, he was out on the court again, and it was it was it was great to be out of court with him in that capacity as a coach. And you know, again, back in the years when I would be started to be asking to do maybe exhibitions or some different things to promote the sport of wheelchair tennis. You know, again, back to, to promoting Larry, um, he was always there. I'd say, Hey, Larry, you know, I, I've got asked to do this thing up and over in St. Pete, or I got asked to do this thing over in Orlando. You know, you you think you could take some time and come over with me and help me out do that? You know, he never said no. He was always like, yeah, absolutely, whatever you need. And we do those things together. And so, um, yeah, it's just, just really great to, to think of, think about Larry and talk about him. And, uh, yeah, good, good, good memories. Good. And speaking of good memories, uh, a friend of ours who hits with, uh, with Craig's son, Christopher, his name is Joe Sopko, 
Uh, Paul, <laughs> you were you were his sister's high school coach. What was that like? Yeah. Allison Sopko, yeah. She, so it was funny. So when I started coaching at uh, at uh, George Jenkins, um, you know, homeschooling was yeah not real big back then, but yeah. but the Sopkos were homeschool folks, and so um, you know, Mrs. Sopko uh, said, hey, you know, my daughter Allison uh, is going to come out for the team, and I'm like, yeah, sure, and and so she came out as a freshman, and she was yeah, pretty really pretty new to the sport, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. But, uh, but was showing a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And, but by her sophomore, junior, senior years, you know, she really, you know, took, took a hold of the sport. And, you know, I think she ended up playing number two for me for probably three years, uh, two or three years that she played with a number two spot for me and was a great young lady, um, you know, is now married and, and got a family and everything like that. Um, and so, yeah, and Joe became a really fine young player. Still uh, is, still is. Remarkable. Yeah, exactly. He's you over know, on great. Facebook Live. He, that's why he, he's... He, we threw that out there. So we, he commented, we're saying, yeah. We're watching also on Facebook Live. So uh, so a nice shout-out to Allison there. And, Joe, thank yeah. you for the question. And let's move into our next question, Paul. Uh, tell us about the Order of Ecos. Yes, we want to hear about that. Yeah. Before we get to the third set. Yeah, that's yeah, a it's huge, just a huge unique, deal. Uh, it's a unique thing for, for players who medal uh, at the Olympics or Paralympics. Um, they have the uh, opportunity to nominate um, a coach who's been – involved in their you know progression to get to that level and so uh, coming out of rio um you know working with the high performance players in the in the usta and on the usta team um you know was fortunate enough that that uh, david wagner and uh, nick taylor who medaled down in rio and guys are two legends in the sport of wheelchair tennis mm-hmm. uh, having won three gold medals in the, in the paralympics prior to to uh, para, uh, prior to rio uh, they got the bronze in rio um but david and nick were 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 kind enough to, um, you know, for the years that I've spent, you know, working with U.S. players and everything like that, to, to um, put my name in for the Order of Ecos. So just really a, a wonderful honor to for them to, one, they, they've got to achieve a really high level. Obviously, you've got to be a medalist at, at the Olympics or Paralympics to, to even get in the running for that. And uh, so it was just, yeah, really fine of them to, to think of me and, and show a little appreciation for times that coaches put in with players. So, yeah really pretty cool. And so you get this nice medal and then, uh, you know, it talks about egos and it's an old yeah. Greek thing and, uh, you know, comes from way back. He was the first, one of the first coaches, you know, back in the, in the Olympic years and, uh, the early Greek Olympic years. And so that's kind of how that all came about. Awesome. Let, let, let me ask you one final question for you yeah. for the third set. Cause I just, just thought about this right now. I just came across, well, what would your life been like if you didn't have that accident? Do you think you would have been, You've had a great life. I mean, an very interesting life as a result of a a tragic accident. Do you think Uh you would have have had this kind of interesting life if, to some degree, do you see where I'm going? I'm kind of thinking. Yeah, no, I I, I get it completely, and I ask myself that a lot and have over the course of the the 25 years that, you know, my life has been different. I mean, I really feel like I've lived two different lives. I mean, so I was injured at the age of 30. You know, so that's having had a pretty good, you know, life and experience some things and been around the world with, with my military time and everything like that and experienced some really great things. Um, but I would, I would argue that because of this situation, um, that I've, I've had a more enriched life and, and some folks would find that hard to believe, I guess, but, but I think if I'm really going to be honest and, and truthful, I would have to say that, that, that fortune has smiled upon me in that regard and, and that, because of that injury and the path that that put me on, um, that I've, that I've had a, a more enriched life than I, than I would have. And, uh, and I, I think I would have had a good life. I just probably tend to think 
you and it's going to be really great so but you got to choose this you'd be like yeah no i'm good i'll go over here uh and i'll take this path but um you know in, in the famous words of, of robert frost it, it was the road less traveled less traveled that is all the difference yeah you know your words and your voice and your attitude and the spirit we can talk about easter and we can talk about COVID 19 but 365 days a year if we can all adopt that positivity and that perspective, um, easy to say on Easter weekend, easy to say during a global pandemic, but uh, even when times are good, I want to think like you and thank you. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to make lemonade out of lemons and you had had a lemon situation, but you've made lemonade out of this thing. You know, really it's fascinating. And and David, you know, highly recommended you, David Good. Yeah. Highly recommended that you were going to be a really good guest and and you far surpassed Anything that I thought uh, was going to be. Whoa, whoa, CB, third set. Oh, third set. We got, I, mean, oh, I, I, oh. I mean, a lot of people are good first two sets, man. Oh, okay. Do you mind if we... Oh, so, you, so you're calling into, into account my stamina right now. You're wondering <laughs> how I can hold the distance. We, you, do you have we, a few more minutes? We, we know how fit this guy is. Right. We're ready, man. He's in the military. He's a military guy. We know. We've yeah. seen the pictures, too. Did, Dude, it's strong. Did, 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 would you humor us for, like, about... Another 20, 30 minutes. With yeah, stuff. let's rock a third set, pal. I'm with you guys as long as you want to be with me. So. <laughs> All right. So here we go. First, first band you saw in concert, probably in Buffalo, New York. First band. Yeah, you know, uh, all right. So sadly, I'm going to tell you that it's, I'm going to tell you a story of the first band that I didn't see. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah and, and so that's the story. I've got, I've actually got two band stories okay. of bands see? that I didn't see. Time? I've never yeah. really been a huge concert goer, but back in the early 80s, a buddy of mine, Tom Manzella, uh, got tickets for the Who, uh-huh. and uh, and and so it was. De- I'm going to tell you right now. It was December. 4th. This is funny. That I remember this. December fourth was the concert, but on December fourth, I mentioned that I played basketball. Well, we got you know you get the tickets well in advance, and though it was basketball season, we ended up having a basketball game that night. Same night, you know, I think we played basketballs on Friday nights. You know, like Tuesday nights and Friday nights. The concert was a Friday night, December fourth, uh, in in Buffalo, and so I never went to see the Who, and they were always one of my favorite bands growing up. Uh, Who's next was this, you know, uh, iconic album that I loved and everything like that. And uh, and then another story was in college. A girl asked me to go to Elton John a concert over at the Sun Dome in Tampa, and I'm like, Yeah, Elton John. Who doesn't love Elton John? I'm fired up to go to go to see Elton John. Literally, we're on I four, which is the interstate that connects. Uh, over from Daytona all the way over to Tampa, cut, cutting east-west in the state of Florida. And so we're on I-4 on the way to USF and got the radio on. There's, I think, four of us in the car that were going over, you know, kind of got the tunes rocking. And the radio comes on and is like, oh, and for all you Elton John fans, you know, unfortunately, we just got the news that the concert's been canceled. It's got, like, laryngitis or something. It was, like, some stupid thing. And so I never made it to the Elton John concert either. So there's my, my two band concerts. That is sad. And you and I are bonded for life, not just because of our show, but I I must tell you, um, two months before December 4th of 1982, I saw The Who as my first concert. Um, Wow. Yeah, in not Western New York, but uh, at Shea Stadium, which you mentioned earlier. And the opening opening act was The Clash, and I love them to this day still. And that was quite a first concert, and you just go downhill from there. But I do want to tell you about my last concert that didn't happen, The Who, April, almost exactly one year ago right now, and Daltrey had laryngitis, 
just like Elton John did. And I still have the tickets sitting there. They, they've, uh, uh, they either give you a credit or they tell you when it is. And I was like, I'm going. So, yeah. So the who. Interesting. Oh, yeah. the, who, who of the who is still alive. I mean, so it's da- Daughtry. You said they're Daughtry yeah. and then uh, Townsend. And, yep. I mean, you don't get to see yeah, they they threw, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, and when I saw them, no, yeah. <laughs> Weekend like at Townsend's, yeah. What a life I, I did see them. Uh, you mentioned uh, Georgia, Fort Benning. I did see them at the Georgia Tech Stadium in 1989, and they just rock, and I'd love to see them again with you, man. So, um, did, did you sport the hair? Were you big hair also, too, back in the day? Did you have. You guys seen pictures of me? Oh, yeah. I've seen. Guess what? I, I know. That's where I was going. You, you and Adrian have a similar. I'm stylist. about to join you, buddy. I, I wore the uh, I wore the hat because of the Federer Wall Challenge, but um, so so did you have a lot of hair? We did go. you have big hair? Were you a big hair I, guy? I didn't have big hair, but I had pretty uh, curly headed hair back in back in those days, the high school days. I was a sure. curly, floppy haired kind of kid, and yeah. then you know, somewhere along the lines, it just just went away. You know, just <laughs> You know, that's a funny story I tell a lot of folks when they ask about disability. You know, and I usually, if I get into a, a, a group, I'll be like, guys, I'm going to tell you specifically, I, I got bad news. You guys, the percentages say that the vast majority of you will end up with a disability like me. And a lot of times I'm like, whoa. And, and I got to tell you, being bald is not going <laughs> to kill you. You know, you'll still be able to get the girl. And, you know, and they kind of helps lighten the, lighten the room a little bit when they uh, they get focused about thinking about the chair. But we're, we're, we're actually going to have a, a contest in the next couple of days. Yeah, we've got a nice, uh, uh, it's going of, viral too. It, 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 uh, we're going to have we're gonna have a draw who has the best hair in tennis uh, back all the way from Back to uh, Vetus Gerolitis, oh, yeah. uh, Ilya Nastasi, all the way forward towards Dustin Brown. We're going to do a draw. We're, we're, you're, we're announcing this right now. Uh, and then also, who has the best? Who's the best bald-headed guy? Yeah. Uh, and so that might be you. You might be in the contest. You might be against Andre in the first round. So we'll, well, we're going to let people decide uh, on at the net who has the best hair of it, hair of head, head of hair, and, and who the has the the best, best uh, non hair, non hair. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. All right. I appreciate you throwing one to us guys who are a little deficient in that oh, yeah. department. I, you know, at least keeping us in the mix. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm right with you, pal. And we're going to do best facial hair as well. Yeah. Not for the not for the ladies, but just for the guys. Yeah. And okay. then uh, we're going to have best hair for, for the ladies as well. So yeah. we're going to actually have four contests coming yeah. up. We're going to. We thought that uh, uh, it'd be kind of fun to. to uh, there's a bunch of hair guys around especially in the 70s 80s 90s oh absolutely boy yeah. you talk about big hair that's why that's why when you're talking about bands you know daltrey had great hair oh yeah you know, huge. He, he was curly head so huge you must hair. have some daltrey hair probably right let <laughs> yeah but quite a bit shorter yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right yeah. uh if you could hear a band all right if you could hear a band second part of this what band would you want to hear what city what venue uh what what, what band would you really like to hear think that would probably be some some band i'm gonna think i'm gonna say the venue first would of course be and you guys should know the answer to this uh fenway, fenway park fenway park <laughs> exactly right you know what I, I i would maybe go with like a this, this is gonna sound odd it's an interesting combo i would maybe go with billy joel in fenway park really interesting yeah. okay the piano man right piano man yeah, yeah. i love it yeah. uh, but you know what i if I have to go band, though, he's, he's a single act. I'll go with the Eagles in Fenway Park. You Eagles, yes. We love the yeah. Eagles. The Eagles are uh, – yeah. uh, they're, they're a pretty special band. Yeah. 
I, li I like them as well. All right, uh, now one last question about a band. If you were in a band, are you are, are you mus a musician by any? Did you play guitar? No. Or no. no I no musical skills whatsoever. All right. So lead singer, lead guitarist, drummer, keyboards, or bass guitarist. What what uh, would you be? Would you be the front man? Or are you more the guy yes, in the back? I would, I would be the front man. I would be the front man. Yeah, yes, I'm going to tell that. that. I'm going to be the front <laughs> I mean, again, we're dreaming this. Yeah. So it's like, why would I not want to be the, drum, the, the front man? I'd be like Phil Collins. I'd be drumming and, and the front man. Oh, and keep in time. Yeah. You're, you're playing the skins and also yeah. drum, and also singing. That, that is really tough to just to play the skins, number one, and then also sing at the same time. I mean, that, that's a compliment to you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, if you're going to do that, man. Well, well again, we're in dream We're in dream world now, so don't be <laughs> and, dream, and We can all dream big. And he's unstoppable to begin with, as yeah. we've learned the past yes. couple hours. All right, favorite movie. Now we're getting to the movie question. This, we're coming back. All right, favorite movie. Yeah, favorite movies. I mean, there's a lot, because I watch a lot of movies, but I, I think if... You know, gun head held to head. I'm a Braveheart guy. I love Braveheart. Braveheart. Um, okay. I love The Godfather yeah. one and two are old school and tough to beat. Of course, um, you know because I'm an army guy. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is a is just an incredibly powerful movie. Yeah. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. I've never been to prison. I don't want to go to prison, but <laughs> it's also a, a, a movie of redemption, and so that's a that's a phenomenal movie. Um, so there's there's some to, to name a few. Gladiator uh, is a great movie, kind of in that same Braveheart, you know, oh, genre. Gibson, you're a Mel Gibson yeah. man. That's what you're sounding like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. You know, he's, he's yeah, I'm, I'm do okay with him. You know. Favorite, yeah, but those those are some of the ones I enjoy. Favorite baseball movie then? I know you're a baseball guy, so Bull Durham. Yep. You know you like nope. Bull Durham? Nope. nope. You, you guys talk about being old school a little bit, okay. and so of course you see what you got. You know, if you continue to guess, The Natural. There it is. Ah, and I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you why. It's, it's my favorite one. Hey, uh, because the, the natural part of the natural, or <laughs> good portion of the natural, the baseball portion yes. was filmed in Buffalo, New York, at the mm. old War Memorial Stadium. Interesting. Interesting. And so I, I played there as a kid and everything like that uh, before they, it was called the rock pile mm -hmm. and uh, before they tore it down. But that's where a lot of the, a lot of the, well, I think all the baseball scenes were, were filmed there. Yeah. Did you see, what, was it filmed when you, were you around Buffalo at the time? So did you see no, it was not, that was not. So no, it was, it was just, I was aware of it. And, uh, that was made there. And, and of course it is a great movie. You know, it's funny because I just recently found out, I never knew this, that the book is, is really completely, 180 from the way the movie finishes really yeah i mean in other words that you know the glorious finish to the movie and yeah. everything you know gets the girl and works out it doesn't happen that way in the book which is really remarkable that they went so dramatically different yeah so roy calhoun is that uh, roy hobbs roy hobbs. hobbs i'm hobbs. sorry yeah roy hobbs, hobbs roy? played by uh, uh robert, robert redford, redford. Yeah. Robert redford. Hey, yeah speaking yeah. of of downer endings and pop culture <laughs> I want to interject a little bit. You're a bit of an authority on Tiger King, I understand. <laughs> Is anybody, or would anybody want to be an authority on Tiger King? I mean, I just, I'm like the rest of everybody else that's just like got their jaw on the floor after having watched that series and going, what in the world? These yeah. people exist. It's like a car wreck on the side of the highway. You can't not it, look, it right? Is. I mean, it's just like. That's a 20-car pileup. It is, and, and every it episode is. I saw, I was reluctant. I wasn't into it. I did it for the family time. And then at the end, I thought, you know, I, I, I was sad, and I wanted to applaud for the lack of Hollywood ending. And I'm not going to ruin it for anybody. Hey, there's, the one, there's gonna... one more episode tomorrow night. Oh, that's, They have uh, another one coming up. Yeah, but you know that's, that's right. going to be yeah. the... 
the totally maudlin nonsense uh, reunion show. Um, Joe, have, Joe Exotic from prison? <laughs> yeah, I'm not spending my Easter on that. Watching Sorry. That no, Sorry. no. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so what's your favorite, like, kind of, like, uh, you know, would tie it to East, the Easter theme? What about what about movie there? I'll ask you guys. I'll come Ooh, back to you and ask me, you guys. Uh, Good Friday, Passion of the Christ, speaking okay. of Mel Gibson vehicles. Uh, no you know, greatest story ever told, which I, I sometimes have seen this weekend, but I haven't this this exact uh, Ten weekend. Commandments for me. I love the Ten Commandments. I can sit there and watch the Ten Commandments. Honestly, I grew up in that movie so many times. It's so great. And the, the movie The Robe is an amazing the movie. movie. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, f- for my family, sometimes uh, Judah Ben-Hur, speaking of oh, Austin vehicles, Ben-Hur yes. was oh. uh, an Easter tradition for us, too. Yeah, great um, one. Really, one of the classics. Yeah, good oh. question. He's thrown, thrown oh, back hey, to us. You're not supposed to be doing that, Paul. Come <laughs> on. Yeah. I opened the, guys, do- I opened I the door. I don't remember in the contract that there was anything oh, about so, my. It was in the fine print. <laughs> also, I'm the I'm the yutz who opened the door for him because right. the the who clash thing. Sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, here's here's a deep deep uh, one also too. All right. Four people. You get four people, and you're going to invite them to dinner. Who are your four people, or maybe more, that you invite to dinner? They sit down with Paul Walker and Teresa Walker at the dinner table. Yeah. Who are you inviting? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of mentioned early in the show, uh, my dad passed away in 1983, so I was a freshman in college. And so, um, you know, now that I'm an adult, and he was 50 years old when he when he passed away, and so oh. I'm 56 now. And, and I think about... You know, as I remember, as I was climbing closer to getting to 50, I'm like, good Lord, you know, when, when is your dad, you yeah. know, your dad's old, right? You know, sure. and, and older, and you just think, of, all right, you know, your, your dad died. But when you get closer to that age, you start to realize, oh, my God, you know, he got robbed of, of a lot of life, you sure. know. And, and so uh, now that I'm 56 and an adult and, and a father and everything like that, you know, certainly, you know, he's got to be at the table because I just got a lot of catching up to do with him. And, uh, you know, and then, then it would be, you know, I think my best friend from from back home, Tony would have to be there. And, um, is that Manzella? And, well, uh, no, no, that was one of my buddies, but no, this is Tony Barifato. So yeah, it's different. like I grew up, you know, Manzella, Barifato. It seems Another like Italian I grew up kid. <laughs> none of those guys, to my, to my knowledge, were connected guys. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but the greatest salt of the earth guys. So Tony would be there. Um, oh, you know, my, I think my good friend, Rob, uh, who's been a lifetime friend, uh, you know, from, from my college days would be there. You know, I mean, you can go with all, all these wonderful historical figures who would be cool to, to spend time with in a moment. But ultimately, you know, for me, and this sounds maybe a little, I don't know what, but uh, these are the people that have been important in my life. And so if I've got one dinner, I want those those people with me. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Um, a lot of guys go historical figures, celebrities. Yeah. And I love the direction you took, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, and I made reference to your, your wife incorrectly. It's Terry instead of Teresa. So, Teresa, Terry. Yeah, so I, sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. it, okay, so uh, East Coast, West Coast. Are you East Coast guy, West Coast guy? Come on. What, what, what Come are we wasting time with this on this? Obvious, <laughs> obvious. We had to ask. Mountains or the beach? Mountains or the beach? You go to the mountains or the beach? I'm a freaking wheelchair guy. You think I, I, I want to spend time in either one of those brutal terrains, mountains with hills, up and down, and everything, or beach? How, how efficient do you think I am on the beach? Come on now. <laughs> I will put my mountain bike tires on your wheelchair, pal. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to do it. 
Have so you been skiing? I, you know, so, so uh, you know what? You know, we like we've gone on some great ski vacations, and again, the family since I've been in the chair and and I've uh, done some skiing. Um, you know, one of the great event, you know, one of the great trips we took was out to um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Wyoming. and Beautiful. did a ski vacation with the family out there one Christmas actually. And so uh, the mountains are, are wonderful for that. Uh, we live in Florida, where the beaches are as good as any place in the world. So that's a fifty-fifty one. I would like a beach house, and I would like a mountain cabin. So I'm, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna sit on the fence with that one. He's like the Swiss. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. Uh, sunrise, sunset. Are you sunrise guy or sunset guy? Uh, I'm probably more of a sunset guy. I think there's something you know that's just kind of as it drifts away, and and the colors I think that you get in the sky oftentimes in the nighttime versus sunrise, where it just kind of the lights coming up, and, and and again maybe I should be saying sunset because that's a the, the risen uh, and the resurrection's happening tomorrow. But uh, I'm a sunset guy because of the colors I think that it, that explode the sky. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a picture. I'll send you a picture yeah. of me and Randy Snow. Oh, yes. Uh, from Austin, Texas. And we were in Austin. We were doing a camp together years ago. And there was this just freakishly amazing uh, Texas sky in the background around sunset. And I'll send you guys a picture of that, of the two of us. And it's just always been one of my favorite and really great memory of, of uh, some time spent with Randy. Paul, yeah. send it. I'll I'll use yeah. it as the thumbnail for when, we, when our episode gets produced yeah. and uh, – and uh, published officially. Thank you. Were you down on Town Lake? Where were you? Just out of curiosity. I, I know Austin pretty well. And is it St. Edwards? St. Edwards. St. Edwards, yeah. 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 South, yeah. South, yep. South side. Congress. Yeah, South Congress down there. Yeah. Very nice place. Uh, favorite season? Spring, summer, winter, fall? Oh, oh. that that back to the to the um to the buffalo days yeah there was nothing like a fall day upstate new york you know we're just in the in the in that part of the world where you know maybe it's 65 degrees and the sun's out it's, so it's just the colors have turned and again the years we spent at west point you know there on the hudson river were just phenomenal it's football season up there it's a special time of year um and the you know the color change and and uh that you know, nothing like a fall day. A crisp fall day is spectacular. Have you ever been to an Army Navy game? Just, I'm just I'm throwing a curveball. Yeah, you know, for three years. So the the position that my wife served in uh, at West Point for the three years that she there was the protocol officer. So she was in charge of the superintendent, who was the head at West Point. She was kind of in charge of his calendar, so to speak. Um, there's always a lot of dignitaries and VIPs that come and go from West Point because it's such a prominent uh, establishment. And so because of that position, uh, you know, all three years that we lived there, you know, kind of had the VIP inside track to, to the Army-Navy games. It's one of the greatest events you could ever attend or be a part of. And, and uh, it's it's really just a spectacular event. Yeah, mm-hmm. So I've been in love with that event ever since. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard several people say, Army Navy. There's nothing like Army Navy. Even though OU Texas is yeah. pretty big down in this territory at the Cotton Bowl, they say Army Navy. Yeah. Army Navy is, is probably the top top uh, college football game. Rivalry game, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's special. And again, because you know, it's it's obviously not at the at the elite pinnacle level of college football but but all that aside the tradition that that exists you know in that game uh just supersedes really everything and and so and the meaning behind it is just so powerful um but uh, yeah it's a pretty spectacular event favorite holiday what's your favorite holiday you know my favorite holiday is thanksgiving yeah interesting okay yep um you know i i you know not to labor it but you know christmas as great as it is uh a little too commercialized for my liking um easter is great of course but thanksgiving uh because again i it just you know kind of harkens me back to my my childhood and that was that was always family time and and that's i mean 
know, just saying thankful. We, we, we just we get together and we're thankful for stuff, and it just kind of makes sense to me. It's, 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 a great, it's a great holiday tradition. Love it. What do you like to do in your spare time? Oh, spare time yes. is, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's weird because it, it seems like with all the tennis that I'm involved with, uh, that is my spare time to a certain extent. It sounds odd, but um, because I do it in different ways, I mean, the USTA, uh, work I do with the USTA, I typically travel for that. So, again, I'm lucky to be able to do that. So I go to some great places. Yeah. Um, so that kind of keeps me entertained. So when I'm out on the road working, I'm also seeing some different places oftentimes i've been fortunate to kind of travel around the country travel around the world uh, because of tennis so you know travel can be be a hobby a little bit you know terry and i i like to we like to travel and when, you know our uh, our boys we like to take them on some trips when we can so i do enjoy traveling uh, but I like to be at home too. I mean, this this time where I know everybody's going crazy, and I and I do want to say I wish everybody well during this really bizarre you, and, and unprecedented time that we're all experiencing. Yeah. Um, you know, I really feel comfortable at home here. I mean, and I'm, I'm happy that I'm not going crazy here, and and so um, everything's good, and, and we're we the best life that we can under the circumstances. And so, yeah, I don't mind being at home. Uh, you know, I'm sitting out here on the Lanai right now uh, by the pool. As we've been talking this whole time, it's a beautiful evening here in Lakeland, Florida. Um, but um, yeah, I like to watch some some shows. Um, you know, I'll have a series on Netflix now and again. I'm I'm currently dedicated because I've got the time to uh, start to finish The Sopranos, and so uh, really done that one. But uh, I'm I'm now committed to that, being as we have a little extra time on our hands. Yeah, that's a it's a quality one to go back and check out for, from 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, do you? We, we like to ask some funny, kind of fun questions. If you want to go, are you a paranormal person? Are you uh, ghost spirits, I, apparitions? I, I am normal? No, paranormal. Paranormal. Abnormal seems like a very odd thing for you to ask. <laughs> that uh, is. Very no, odd. <laughs> the paranormal. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> not the abnormal. Para, paraplegic, yes. Yes, paranormal, paraplegic, no. yes. Yes. You believe in ghosts, spirits, apparitions? Not so much. Uh, I wouldn't. I believe in kind of believe in energy. I mean, if we get into a kind of philosophical, or I don't know what that would be. Uh, I believe in energy, and, and maybe that's spirit. Um, but I'm not so much on the ghost side of it, everything like that. But if I'm saying I believe in spirit, but not ghost, I don't know if that contradicts. I'm no expert in the field. I'm just. I think there's energy in the world. I will say that. What about extraterrestrials? UFOs, little green Klingons, Romulans. And there's not stuff out there. Uh, it would seem that it would almost have to be. Uh, I don't get caught up in it too much, but it just seems like hard to believe we're the only ones. You've never seen a UFO, have you? Have you? I've not. I've not. I would never claim that I've been a, been akin to any any UFO or any any you know Loch Ness sighting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of our favorite questions in here in Texas is Lee Harvey Oswald, lone gunner or conspiracy theorist. Uh, no way he did that by himself. Interesting. Spoken from a military man. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't see it. Yeah. Have you ever been to the museum, the Six Four Observatory? Uh, no, I've not been. To, I've not. No, I've been to, I've been to Dallas and, and uh, really loved the city of Dallas and everything, and everything about it. But I've not done the done the time to go see that. It's a must. It, well, yeah, baseball between that game, and the baseball. Game. Baseball. Well, there's three things: baseball, yeah. barbecue, and Six Four. Oh, huh. We're, we're going to take you. We're we're going to next time you come here. If you don't. Call us. We're going to get really mad at you. We're going to come down there, and yeah, I don't know what yeah. we're going to do. Yeah. Might, you know. Hey, 
Hey, uh, listen, you don't have to continue to sweeten the pot. You had me at baseball. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> the barbecue. Now I'm getting a nice historical tour of, uh, of one of the great historical events. And not great historical events, but a historical event yeah, uh, in, in our country's yeah. history. So yeah, I'm all in, fellas. I'm there next Thank time you. I get the big D. All right. All right. Uh, now we're kind of rounding, rounding the corner. We're going to ask you a few tennis questions, then we'll officially be, be done. All right. Uh, sure. What kind of racket do you play with these days? I'm just curious, you know, back to kind of wheelchair tennis, what kind of racket yeah. do you use? Uh, I've always been a, a head guy. I've, mm-hmm. I've played with head rackets uh, throughout the time that I uh, played and, and continue to coach. And being as I don't play anymore, I'm not all that, um, you know, like dedicated. But like head radical was the one I played with the most. Mm-hmm. Um, head speed, I like the head speed that I've, I've had that, Last couple of years, that's probably the one I've used the most when I'm coaching and everything like that. So uh, always been in the in the head family though. Get nylon, poly combination. What what do you use? What kind of string? Yeah, I've never been I've never been overly um, OCD about my string. So it's it's kind of like uh, get some strings, I'll try them, and and I've never been uh, too much and and probably to a fault that I did be a little bit more conscientious about my string and that's one area of the tennis uh, world that i'm like you know what i'm no string expert i'm not claiming to be uh and i'm okay with that tension in the racket what about what, what do you use what what kind of tension are you a low end do you, you know trying to get off the more power or are you more control at a higher tension uh when i was playing i was a little bit more higher and, and looking to get a little bit more of that control. But as I've gotten a little older, I'm like, I need a little extra help here. So I've dropped it down. So where I was usually, you know, on the, on the higher end of what was recommended, now I'm on a little bit of the lower end of what's recommended. Indoor tennis or outdoor tennis? Uh, you know, uh, outdoor, ultimately outdoor. But, but oh, I'll tell you, growing up, a buddy of mine, and this is back to, you know, how do you get involved in, in the sport of tennis a little bit? You know, one of my best friends growing up, worked at a tennis club up in, in Buffalo. And so oftentimes he would have the, um, uh, the assignment to close the club down late at night. Oh, so oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know, you know where this one's going, right? So, you know, like I'd go up there and I'd help him clean up and do all sorts of stuff. Boom. We'd lock the doors. And then the two of us would play, you know, till two in the morning, you know, from midnight till two or something like that in, in the indoor club up there. I'm not going to name the club. It's bad under <laughs> different ownership anyway. But, you would incriminate uh, yourself. Some great memories of playing indoor tennis up there. And of course, playing indoors uh, up at Flushing Meadow again, when, when I first was introduced to wheelchair tennis, but ultimately I love being outdoors. I like the challenge of embracing wind and sun and how that affects the, the sport and you know uh, embracing those elements versus letting them bother you uh, i'm a big fan of that yeah. favorite surface what's your you know grass clay woods <laughs> yeah i think i think ultimately hard court but i did i really have enjoyed playing on clay over the years um you know and i played in some really phenomenal clay courts uh, around the world at some of our, our great international events that we've attended um but ultimately i'd have to come back to the hard courts it's just it's just you know what, what we're most used to in the states here isn't it yeah and, and pushing off in the chair too, right? Yeah, it, it certainly, as I mentioned, and kind of went down the list there. It's, it's certainly the friendliest surface to, to to push on and play on. Yeah, you just you just get that nice uh, little added roll, um, and you can sustain your momentum once you create it. Yeah, so most embarrassing. Yeah, U.S. Open, U.S. Open, the Deco Two is a, yeah. is just a phenomenal surface, you know. And so having played there, that was kind of my home. Those were really my home yeah. courts in, mm-hmm. in the early years when I first started playing. So I was really spoiled playing on. I've played on Arthur Ashe Stadium. I really, I don't know how many times. Been fortunate enough to play inside there, yeah, and the so um, yeah, it'll always be kind of what I'm preferential to. Tremendous. What's your most embarrassing moment in tennis? Have you had an embarrassing moment? 
beatdown that I talked to you about? <laughs> David Hall. <laughs> I mean, uh, embarrassing moment. Oh, you know, it, it's a coaching moment. And I, and again, I shared this recently. In 2017, I was coaching in Sardinia, our U.S. women's team, and uh, we were in the we were in the bronze medal match, which was a really great thing, you know. For and we did end up winning uh, that tie to to secure the bronze medal. I'm really proud of of Dana and Mackenzie and Lauren, uh, who were, were the three girls that were uh, ladies who were on the women's team that year. Um, and so, uh, but we're in the we're in the bronze medal match, and it was the first first singles match. So we play uh, we play two singles and one doubles, and the doubles is played if the two singles have split. That's the format for World Team Cup, which is the, which is the equivalent of the Davis or the Fed Cup mm-hmm. in wheelchair. And so uh, Mackenzie was playing. Mackenzie Sullivan was playing the number two position for us, and she was. We were playing Switzerland, and uh, she was playing an old veteran player from Switzerland who I was very aware of as being a very good player, but had kind of left the sport for a year or two, and now was coming back to the sport uh, as, as a member of the Swiss team. And I was really like concerned, like this could be a tough match. This girl's really good. She was a former you know, Swiss number one and really you know high ranked player and everything like that. And I'm like, and but I hadn't seen her play in this in the course of this tournament. We were on different kind of draws with teams, and so we never saw them. And so we get out in the warm up portion, and I'm like, oh my god, this girl is kind of a, a shell of her former self. And and I'm thinking Mackenzie's going to mop the floor with her. This is great. We're, we're, we're golden here. And so the match just doesn't start to, un- just doesn't unfold in the way I thought it was going to. And Mackenzie's really struggling. And I'm like, uh-huh. good Lord, I'm starting to get a little fired up and I'm starting to get a little, you know, irritated. I'm on the court, you know, as we are as captains with our players. And so she loses this one point. She has no business losing like a forehand sitter over by the, uh, the, the single sideline and the, and the service line with, Line option, angle option, any option, drop shot, you name it. You've got 16 menu items to choose from, Mackenzie, and you choose the one in the bottom of the net to lose the game. <laughs> and, I, I, and I lose it, and I'm like, and I just yell out across the court, hit the fill-in-the-blank expletive ball. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and, and it just exploded out of my mouth. And as it did, I'm like, oh, boy, that was really a good choice. Uh-huh. And so, you know, ultimately, it's a good story. It's a good ending. Mackenzie gets herself back together and wins the match. We go on to win the next singles match and secure the bronze. But, but in the moment, it was my maybe least proud coaching moment. Was that, was that one of those Homer Simpsons? Don't. Yeah, you know it's funny. Uh, you know, one of our other U.S. coaches was on a court over coaching his team at the time, and I just—I remember him just kind of like turning and looking over, kind of like, "What? What did I just hear?" Yeah. Uh, you know, we we laughed. What's going to over there? Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, favorite tournament? What's your favorite tournament? Favorite tournament? Yeah. Um, well, there is a tournament, I, I think I mentioned it in Baton Rouge, called the Cajun Classic. It's been there for a long time, uh, run by uh, a gal and, and a group of folks in Baton Rouge that I've gotten to know over the years. Jen Edmondson is the tournament director, um, and she's just been a phenomenal uh you know, force in wheelchair tennis and, and, and keeping that tournament, making it big. It's a super series, which is, you know, um, just a notch down below Grand Slam level uh, on the on the Uniqlo Tour and on the ITF Tour. Uh, but the Cajun Classic, what makes the Cajun so spectacular is it is truly Cajun. I mean, they, they embrace it. And so one night you get uh, at Dufay, one night you get, you know, homemade jambalaya, one night they do a catfish uh, cook, you know, one night they do a crawfish boil. I mean, it's just like, I mean, they just such Southern hospitality and the Cajun, true Cajun, you know, cuisine is brought to the to the most uh, perfect, you know, sense. And so I love the Cajun, you know, and I love the people down there. They play any Zydeco during that time? Any Zydeco music? 
No, 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 Zonico, no I don't that's, think, come on. Is that kind of like that kind of twangy kind of yeah, thing? Well, it's it's uh, the uh, the the laundry, the washboard. Yeah, it's, it's a little. Oh, no, okay. no, I haven't seen do any of that. Uh, no, no, oh, come on, they got to do something like that. That's that's Cajun. Uh, Cajun. I'll, Cajun. I'll, I'll talk to them about it. I'll yeah, say, that's... hey, you better get it. Better get it done. Yeah, Boudreaux. Is there any Boudreaux down there? <laughs> yeah, that's everybody's last name. <laughs> Boudin. They got Boudin balls. Boudin. Boudin. Yeah. Boudin. Boudin. Do you like to watch tennis on TV? Are you a tennis watcher? Not, not too much, to be honest with you. I typically will watch uh, Grand Slams, second week Grand Slams. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I'm kind of just a patriotic rascal. So um, if there's Americans that are still left in the draw, uh, I, I take an interest more often than uh, if there's not. And so, um, you know, as, as we have some of the young American women that have done well here in, in recent times that have kind of piqued my, my interest. And uh, we can get some of the young American men kind of, yeah, staying a little bit longer in the tournaments uh, that will keep me around a little longer as well. If you could win a Grand Slam, which one would it be? Grand Slam. It's all about the home cooking. I, I, I love the tradition of Wimbledon and the French and the Australian, but you know, it's there's no place like the oh, U.S. Open, baby. Good. Favorite tennis player? Who's your favorite tennis player? It could be pe- present, past, anybody. wheelchair yeah. or yeah. able-bodied. Yeah. I grew up being an Agassiz. Well, I grew up being a Connors fan. I was I was a big Connors fan in the early early days. Um, but then Agassiz ultimately probably ended up being my favorite player um, as I was kind of really kind of getting into the sport, and he was he was prominent and prevalent. And so um, yeah, I just I've always liked the way he handled himself, um, and I, I like where he's gone with his life. You know, since post tennis and everything like that. Have you ever met him? I have, yeah, yeah. I did uh, meet him uh, at the U.S. Open, and then again at a uh, an event in Jacksonville. Uh, he was the uh, um, keynote speaker at the Malibu Washington Foundation event that I went to up in Jacksonville some years ago. So, so do you like him pre uh, bald head? You know, like hair, like <laughs> well, mullet, yeah, or bald. bald. <laughs> I, I think I think when he just kind of allowed himself to be himself and wasn't going with the weave uh, and and the extensions and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think I like them better on the on the bald side. I know you've got a couple of boys. Do they play tennis? Uh, my oldest son Jake uh, played high school tennis. You know that was kind of a, a sport, but he he really was he's not really migrated to sports overall. And my younger son Danny, uh, both of them played a little baseball growing up, um, and Danny's kind of continued to play a little basketball. Um, but Jake's migrated uh, you know more away from sports, but he did play uh, tennis in high school, so that was fun uh, following him uh, for during the high school years. Yeah. Right. If if you wouldn't have been involved in sports, let's say, what would you be doing right now? What would uh, Paul Walker be doing if he wasn't tennis, wasn't uh, baseball guy, tennis guy? What would you, you know, would you be, uh, you know, what would you be up to? History teacher? You know what? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, and that's not a bad question uh, or a recommendation, but I think I would be doing something like what we're doing right now. I would be talking. Uh, maybe it would be radio or, or something like that. I, I really do think that, that that could have been a route that I might uh, maybe could have gone in at some point in my day or, or you know, and I, you say not in sports, but um, it probably would have been sports, uh, sports commentary, sports announcing, sports talk, that kind of stuff. I do love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, the, military, the military was a great choice. I'm, I'm so fond and happy that, that my path took me in that direction. Uh, so I, you know, I, I envisioned that I was going to have a career in the military and that would have been 20 plus years. That was, that was the plan at the time. Uh, the plan got changed and, um, you know, so as we've already covered, um, I'm, I guess grateful that it did and uh, embraced how it did. And so um, good with that, but the military years were great, special years.
there's something about that kindred uh, time that you spend with your with your soldiers and with with um, you know warriors. It's just it's a unique time. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Thank you for your service, by the way. We we didn't uh, thank you for that. Uh, we appreciate uh, all the military and and uh, first responders out there because you all uh, reason why we're sitting here yeah. is we we uh, we share freedom and a lot of people don't and uh, we're very thankful for it yes. and uh, thank and you very much. You're one time. of the guys we want to thank. Yeah. Well, I can tell you guys are all American lads. I mean, just just this time we spent together, we've not met. Um, just our correspondence and everything like that, but uh, just you. in our time here talking tonight, I can tell how deeply entrenched you are in in, in America and in all the things that make our country great. For example, um, we've got our flaws, but it's still, as far as I can tell, the best thing going. Best yeah. damn country in the in the, the world. Best. We're the, the best. best. Amen. Amen, Love Amen. being here. Thank yeah. you. And actually, my uh, my first cousin was uh, an instructor at West Point. Uh, his wow. name was Mike Hess. I don't know if you ever ran into Colonel Mike Hess. He was uh, he was in finance basically most of his time, and uh, he's in down in D.C. But he he taught at, at West Point. I can't remember the exact years. He, he yeah, was that was there. a critical thing. Yeah. Yeah, I have to, oh. I'll, have to, I'll have to ask him what, when he was up there. See if, see if you all ever okay. ran into him. Yeah, my wife my wife attended there from eighty four to eighty eight. And then we were there from 95 to 98. So, yeah, spent a little time there. So yeah, Great. Okay, so here's the last question. This is the, oh, we are at the home stretch, and this is a at big the pinnacle, one. At the pinnacle. This could take another hour for you to answer. So that don't feel obligated to stay an hour with us. But if you want to, that, that's fine. So we're going to make you the commissioner of the great game. All right? And you have the magic wand, the magic racket. What change changes? What do you do? What, what What's in it? Here for? it is. You've got it right here. So what do we do in the great game? If, if there's any changes needed, not needed, what do we do? In, in, in the great game of tennis? Yes. Oh, yeah, the great game. A lot of great games out there. I don't know if I was sure <laughs> if I was. Uh, well, we'll, we'll talk about that's another podcast. No, that's right, yeah. Uh, tennis. So tennis, you know, um, I guess there's a lot of talk on the on the five set thing um, in the grand slams, for example, and the scheduling. Um, you know, there, I guess there's something special about that. To me, I think I almost would would go with a almost like a tiered um, a tiered thing in in the especially the grand slams. So there would only ever be obviously five setters in the grand slams, but I would tier it. I think I would be in the early rounds. I, I wouldn't be all five sets. It would be as you progress, and maybe it starts from the quarterfinals on uh, that that you build up, and then it becomes we're going to see some some fifteen round boxing matches going forward as it gets more serious in the draws, for example. So in the early rounds, let's get it done, let's knock it out. Maybe there's some upsets because of that, and I and I get that. But as we get deeper into the tournament, quarterfinals on, we're going five. Um, I struggle with the women uh, having. Um, I can feel equal prize money, but I do. Yeah, wanna... I don't understand that yeah. one. I'm all about equal pay. I, I no. really am. I, 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 would, no. I would be remiss if I didn't. I don't get that one. And, and I've yet to have anybody really explain to me if you're, you're playing three, I'm playing five and you walk away with that check and I walk away with that check. And, and I don't get that one. Uh, well, I, I, I want to rewind just a little right. bit. Tell us why sure. you want a tiered approach to two out of three versus three out of five. Is it for the health of the players or is yes, it for yeah. fan I think, engagement? I think a little bit of both actually. Uh -huh. And uh, I think the, I think the health of the players more than anything, because I think they're just, it's tough to sustain. And, and you hear that a lot with the, with the, the tour and the grind that these guys and gals have to go through. Um, but I think that because we've had it as a tradition, you know, you don't, I don't want to eliminate it. I think 
always been something special about, hey, we're going five, and there is something unique about it. Um, I certainly would get to tiebreakers. You know, I'm sorry if we're going to play him in this set, in set one. I don't know why we would change it and not play it in set five. Mm. Um, so, the, you know, the playing it out thing, which they've adjusted, obviously, at Wimbledon and stuff, is good, but I would I would get that all on a, on an equal footing um, and, and get that. I just think there's something exciting about the breakers. I love the breakers. Nothing, oh, like, nothing, like, nothing like a fifth set in oh, New York City. The best. In, oh, on, right. on a night match. And that is just off the charts. The yeah. Best. Uh, I don't care who yeah. it is. Fifth yeah. set, you know, New York City under the lights, you know, that, that New York crowd, it, it's something special. Yeah. You know, it, it, who was it? Uh, McEnroe back when, uh, and Nastasi, was it McEnroe or Connors and stuff? Uh, Jimmy and, and Mac had a 7 6. Yeah. And, um, but I'm thinking the one where they had the Frank, uh, Frank, uh, was the yeah, that, yeah. Brennan, Frank Hammond. Hammonds, was it the uh, 1979 US Open? He got taken out of the chair. Uh, by Frank Blanchard, yes. and then, uh, and then he was reinstated. The yeah. match was reinstated. Yes. After Nastasia was, was uh, defaulted. That. I was like, wow, yeah. wow, what a what a show that was. That, that was, was kind crazy. Of, very crazy. You know, uh, sometimes we do birthdays on the show, and today happens to be the birthday of a guy who was in a fifth set tiebreaker at the U.S. Open, uh, and it was one of the finest matches that I'd ever seen. My dad and I had tickets to see uh, the night session, and it, was, it turned out to be Edberg's last match. I think it was the quarters of the U.S. Open 96, I believe. But the reason we didn't get into that match until about two hours later was Karecha was playing Pete, and oh. Pete was vomiting was that the, in was that, that. the puke match? That's it, the puke match. Yep. And we were able to see it because that was the first year they installed this massive Jumbotron TV. So we're stuck outside waiting to get in. It's, uh, you know, we're maybe 45 minutes into the night session, but you can't really get in because the stadium is absolutely rocking. You could hear it, and then you could see about a three to four second delay on the actual TV. And here we are watching Pete puke and somehow <laughs> fire aces and slices. I know. And I, I was watching that match. You were there, too. I do, yeah, uh, and I, how he got through that, it really is. I don't know how he did it. And then, and then four he days just, later, he yeah. routes Chang in the final, and he is number yeah. one in the world with a bullet. And poor Karecha, whose 46th birthday it is as we speak, the uh, poor guy even double faulted on match point, point, as I recall. <laughs> and I just point, love yeah. him. I just uh, felt so bad for Alex. But obviously, good for Pete, good for U.S. For uh, our man won the Open that year. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, let me, let me follow up as an addendum to you talked about from the able body, from what yeah. maybe on the wheelchair standpoint, is there something that you'd like to change that uh, in the wheelchair game, possibly, if any? I just had that thought. Yeah, no, I, I, it's a great thought. I mean, uh, you know, the wheelchair um, tennis world has has had some steady evolutions, and it's really in a. I think it's in a really good place right now. They're going through some um, um, what we call classification adjustments right now. Uh, it kind of talked earlier about what it takes to play wheelchair tennis. You know, the requirement for there to be a permanently diagnosed mobility impairment. But because because there has started has started to be some, some decent money in wheelchair tennis, not great, but decent and probably proportionally appropriate. Um, you know, people with lesser disabilities are doing well, um, and, and it just makes sense. I mean, if I if I've got more balance and I can bear weight, I can do more, and I have more to my body that I can bring to the 
essentially bring to the chair, uh, I'm going to do better. Um, so they, they've kind of redone some classification issues to where there has to be some minimal requirements. And every mm-hmm. player that's uh, trying to qualify for Tokyo, which was going to be 2020, but now 20, yeah. 2021, had to go through this reclassification process. And it actually um, is going to disqualify a few players. Um, but I think that they've kind of got that in the right direction. Um, the integration into the Grand Slams is fully on. Um you know, a lot of a lot of the players are wanting to see bigger draw sizes in, in the wheelchair uh, draws at the at the Grand Slams. I don't know if I agree with that. I still think proportionally the amount of wheelchair players that there are, um, it's probably a fairly good proportion that we have eight, eight, and four at the Grand Slam in regards to the divisions: eight men, eight women, and four quads. Um, and so I think that's good. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of work that's going on right now by the ITF to kind of get it right and get the tour aligned more properly before because we were so grateful to have somebody say, hey, we'll host a tournament here or we'll host a tournament there. But I think they're trying to get it more in line with the ATP and the WTA where it kind of follows a natural progression of, of like hard court season or play court season and, and gets a little bit more streamlined that way. So that's in the process of happening. It's a, it's a ways away from that. Um, but they are trying to get that kind of aligned. And so I think that's a good direction. So so right now I think the state is good and it's strong. And so I'm, I'm kind of happy with, with the direction that most things are going in. So um, that's kind of where I'm at with things. Well, man, great, great stuff and a tremendous answer to wind it all up. We had a good time. Oh, my gosh. That's two few, hours. They yeah, seem like two minutes. Too much. You, you've, you've been with us two hours, and we, we've taken way too much of your time. But we in, have enjoyed the journey. Trust us. Certainly us. have, yeah. It's been very fun. Uh, uh, I, I like to use the term win-win, right? I mean, if we can create win-win scenarios uh, in life, then, then things are good, right? So not, not just one party gaining and one party benefiting. Uh, to me, I, I know I feel like a winner tonight. You know, I haven't spent some time with you fellas. Thank and, you. Uh, and good for you, then, then we've got win-win and, and everybody goes away. We We're sure happy. did. Well, God bless you and happy Easter. And you want to come, you're coming to Dallas for you are. A barbecue, baseball, and Lee Harvey Oswald, right? Done. Love it. Done. Done deal. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm thinking 2020 is looking so good because nothing's looking good in 2020. Nothing. I'm going to keep you guys uh, on my list Next of year. Uh, people and places to, to see. Yeah, well, thank you, Paul. We've Paul, just, big thanks. Thank and, you. And here is Craig Bell with our dismount. All right, everybody. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Season 1, Episode 35 of At The Net Podcast. Be sure to tell a friend or friends as we like your people. Hopefully they'll like us. And that's the tennis news as it seems to us. us. Good evening from Dallas, Texas. Happy Easter, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. Actually, we have Gene Stasley tomorrow. So. Well, happy Easter, and we've got a show tomorrow. We do. So yeah. We'll see you all later from Dallas, Texas. Thank you, everybody.